This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt, your coach, your guide on the side. You made it another Friday, folks. It happened. We're so proud of you. I'm here today with uh, Terry and Becca, of course, putting together the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. Today, by the way, we're going to be talking about the fact that uh, maybe the world isn't as bad as you think it is. Got an awesome guest uh, who's done some um, research about uh, we just tend to see it negatively. But in reality, there's a lot of good. And if you just look at the data, you'd see the good. What leads us to think of things in a negative fashion, Matt? Your desire to survive. Is that what it is? So as long as as long as you take the worst possible scenario and and make sure that doesn't happen, you're fine. So we always look to the worst. Hmm. It's pretty sad. But meanwhile, North and South Korea are shaking hands across the DMZ, walking into each other's countries, planting a tree. And Kim Jong-un or one of them is driving in a black limousine with 12 men running around it. Life is good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Life is very good. And so, honestly, this is crazy. North and South Korea have met and have vowed to formally end the Korean War. Yeah, the statement said, The two leaders solemnly declare that there will be no more war on the Korean Peninsula and a new era of peace has begun. That is amazing. They're shaking hands across the DMZ, the line, right. and they... Um, uh, they walked into South Korea, took pictures. Then he invites him into North Korea. He Would goes, you like to come into my country? How soon can you come to my country? When will you come into my country? Would Did, you like to come now? Were they checking passports and things yeah. before they crossed? Apparently or? not. Okay. Well, it is really international a, law. Okay. an incredible moment. And apparently um, in North Korea, it's not appropriate to smile in pictures. Yeah. But um, You have to reflect the overall gloom. Yeah. Well, he nailed it. But then nice. but then there was a picture of Kim Jong-un shaking hands, smiling, yeah. and it's just – this he said, is hey, history. We, at one point, I think it was said like – either it was a joke or it was actually stated, but the, it, the headline said that the North Korean leader promises not to disrupt the South Korean leader's sleep with any more missile tests. That is – thank you. And, and, and then South Korea promised to no longer play any more – The music. Gangnam style. The, K, the K-pop blasting across yeah. the – DMZ there. It's well, funny how much this sounds like what goes on in the student apartments. Yeah. These are just neighbors. You know, <laughs> will you stop playing your music? Did okay, you, will you stop dropping stuff like at three in the morning? Thanks. There you go. Boy, I didn't know. I, I, yeah. That's I've funny. I've been in dorms for a long time. I didn't there, know there it was is like a, that. There is an element of the story that hasn't really talked about. North Korea is trying not to let people know about it. What's that? But because the world has satellites. Oh, yeah. um, the testing facility for North Korea and their oh, weapons yeah. has collapsed on itself. Oh, that little old thing? Because <laughs> they were blowing up their bombs under a mountain. Yeah. And they took out the entire base of the mountain, so the whole thing collapsed, collapsed on, on, this, on yeah. it. So their whole nuclear program may have collapsed on itself. So now they're like, ah, Wait, I, we'll give it up. Let's do that plan B thing. Let's do that. Let's get food for our people now. And whatever it is, it now means that somebody drives in a black limousine. And it's secure. It's it's Kim Jong Un. His yeah. security detail. They're all the exact same height. It appears. Right. Tall, good looking, mm, incredibly fit. They look like our team, yeah. by the way. Right. And then they just run in file around his car. It's awesome. And they keep this perfect like wedge around him. Oh wow! It's amazing. Highly trained secret <laughs> service, and in great enough shape to run at 
40 miles an hour. Well, yeah, that's what's amazing. <laughs> it's got to be the hardest job in the world. So, wow, awesome historic news. Uh, and by the way, you're listening to it, but it's a part of your current life, this history. Let's get to the headlines, see if there's any other history going on that we should be paying attention to. What's up, Terry? The uh, British prince has a name. Oh, good. Have you seen this yet? No. Yes, I have, actually. Prince William, Kate Middleton must really like the name. Is it Lewis? Lewis. Or is it Louis? Or is it Louis? I'm <laughs> not sure. Lewis. I think it's Lewis. Wouldn't Louis have an E? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure the royalty wouldn't call him their kid Louis, would they? <laughs> so his name's Lewis. I don't know. Louis doesn't bring up any, like, good rulers in my mind. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I'm sure we'll get a call. It says uh, the name was widely perceived to be a tribute to Prince Philip's uncle, Louis Mountblatton, Louis. who was murdered by the Irish Republican Army in 1979. Oh, really? But there was also a nod to William's father, Charles, because they put huge ears. I mean, the new baby's full name also reflects oh, his you grandfather. I'm sorry. Bringing up they the got to get some tape or something. You had to bring up the ears. If you watch The Crown, the child that plays Charles, they found a kid with some ears on him. That guy's got ears. to reflect the child. Okay, to the news. Former CIA Director Mike Pompeo was uh, confirmed Hello. as Secretary of State with a 57-42 vote. Yeah, it happened. So close, but not that close. He's in uh, Brussels for a NATO conference. The President of the United States will visit the UK on uh, the 13th of July. Okay. He will hold bilateral talks with the Prime Minister during his visit. The Daily Telegraph reports that Trump is set to meet the Queen at either Balmoral or at Windsor. Wow. And he is expected to meet Prime Minister Theresa May at uh, uh, her countryside residence. Both places would be avoiding London, where they the fear mayor. mass protest when Trump walks right. into that country. And the mayor is not having it. mayor's not having it. Don't come to our, don't come to our city. Yeah. So he's going to... England, avoiding the capital and hiding in the countryside. Because well, maybe he'll go for a hunt. Maybe I don't know. They outlawed fox hunts. Maybe he'll hunt something else. Some Comey. Some pheasant. They'll do a Comey hunt. A Comey hunt. <laughs> a ride on President Trump's bullet train can be thrilling. Bullet train being a euphemism for his campaign. Yeah. This is an article out of the New York Times. I found this to be kind of interesting. But uh, Maggie Haberman, who's known as the Trump whisperer. Oh, yeah. Because she's had more sit-down interviews one-on-one with the president than any other reporter since he became president. Interesting. He called her a third-rate reporter last week. But he sits down with her all the time. He talks to her all the time. <laughs> so it says, uh, this is her writing, her and uh, Peter Baker, they write together. A ride on President Trump's bullet train can be thrilling, but it's often a brutal journey that leaves some bloodied by the side of the tracks. In only 15 months in office, Mr. Trump has burned through a record number of advisors and associates who have found themselves in legal, professional, and personal trouble, or even all three. Hmm. Half of the top aides who came into the White House with Mr. Trump in 2017 are gone, many under painful circumstances. Yeah, there, there's a pile now. And Scraps, they're calling them. That, that's their article as they kind of recap. 15 months, here's what's happened, here's the not yeah. normal part of a president who is uh, hard to pin down at times. Right. And why, when he was on the phone with Fox and Friends yesterday, the report are the aides have been trying for months to keep that from happening. Oh, really? Because they said that kind of reflects his phone calls to friends on his his executive time that you hear about. Yeah. Is he goes off on these certain issues that really irk him, and he kind of folded from 
a professional president to the media phone call to just shooting the breeze with friends phone call, and it kind of sounded And it may have negatively impacted his case, too. Yeah, because now he uh, said that it has to do with Cohen and the client uh, Yeah, he claimed he, he he, he hardly did anything for him, so there really shouldn't be any client privilege if... They were yeah. hardly interacting on anything. Well, they're trying to keep documents out of yeah. public view. He has for many, 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 many lawyers. Yes. Many of them. That's what he said. Billions and billions <laughs> of lawyers. Uh, all right. Senate Judiciary Committee approved legislation Thursday that would protect Robert Mueller's job, a bipartisan rebuke that came after hours after President Trump said he may try to influence the special counsel's Russia probe on that Fox and Friends phone call. The measure still faces stiff opposition from the White House and the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has said he would not bring it up to a vote in the full Senate. But the 14 to 7 committee vote indicated a growing appetite among GOP senators to push back against Trump as the, as the president flirts with further involvement in the investigation of his campaign ties and the Russia obstruction justice election of 2016. Mm-hmm. You know, all that jazz. Yeah, all that fun stuff. Uh, Iowa Congressman Steve King says airport travelers don't have enough options when it comes to how they get their news and that CNN has far too much control of our airports. Oh, because they've got a corner on the airport market? Uh, Congressman King has submitted an amendment to the FAA Reauthorization Act 2018 that he says would allow for greater broadcast choice for the nation's travelers. CNN programming airs on the TV screens at some 60 airports across the country, including in Des Moines International Airport, where he's from. One of the airport, one airport that does not have an agreement with CNN is the one in Sioux City, Iowa, the one in his uh, congressional district. And uh, so whatever. Oh, wow. They, they went around the uh, Des Moines airport. This is out of an Iowa TV station. And they asked people, and the guy goes, well, yeah, I mean, it's on, but I don't have to watch it. I just, yeah, I'm on my phone. And, yeah. Okay, it's great. Mm-hmm. When I was traveling recently, my hotel, you walk in, sit down, they had Fox News. They had three huge TVs. One side on the, well, that would be on the right, Fox News. And then in the middle was ESPN, and on the left was CNN. It was just oh, wow. every morning at breakfast, that's what was on the wall. And, you know, I just what? watched ESPN. MSNBC wasn't even turned on? No. That's too far left. Yeah. Holy cow. And then at the airport, they had uh, CNN and Fox News and MSNBC all over the place. So. And we didn't even mention, um, by the way, speaking of news, Mr. Cosby. Oh, man. He's guided. I mean, guilty, yeah. Found yeah. guilty on three counts. The pudding pop pitchman, as I saw it referred to yesterday, is guilty as charged. Uh, and then he had a little blow up. He went. He yelled at the prosecutor as he was trying to uh, keep him grounded. He yeah. said uh, Cosby has a private plane, and we don't need him flying. You know, leaving yeah. jurisdiction. Yeah. And he went nuts, saying, "I don't have a plane." I don't have or, a plane, and then yeah. His his lawyers quickly Shh, be quiet. Stop doing this. It's not helping. This is a big. This is the grandpa. Many people. This is Mr. Huxtable that yeah. was our this iconic is, father slash. He was TV. Adult. He was America's dad. That yeah. was the idea. We I, I loved that show as a kid. Uh. Oh well, um, Amazon made news yesterday. They're raising the rates on your Prime account by twenty bucks. Great. So that'll kick in either when you renew or if you're a new customer, it'll be one hundred and nineteen dollars. And uh, then the headline along with that is Bezos raised or gets twelve billion dollars. I guess something. Maybe it's this new move makes him twelve billion a year. Oh, well, maybe. Who knows? 
That's a lot of moo. My wife went, how much? I go, 20. And she goes, that's eh, free shipping. Now it just means we got to buy more. Yeah. <laughs> got to buy more stuff to get, get free our shipping. Money. The, and also, uh, Amazon's trying to fight people who are stealing packages off your doorstep. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. And they, yeah. they had the idea, they, they had like a video doorbell. You could see it on your phone. When the delivery guy comes, you can open the door. They'll open the door, put your package inside the door, and shut the door. They have boxes that automatically unlock. Oh, that's, yeah, that's cool. So they're cool. coming up with yeah. all these different ideas. Now there's a program where they will let you uh, open your trunk of your car. They'll deliver yeah. to your car. They'll open you open the trunk. They put the uh, package service. in and shut the door. Uh, they say it's a free service for all Amazon Prime users. The problem is you have to have uh, like an OnStar type oh, car. connection you to, like to your a, yeah, car, like sh- yeah. which, of course, there's a fee to have the OnStar. So it's not really free. You have to have capability of opening <sighs> your trunk from your office. Just more money. Can you buy that through Amazon? No. Will they just call my neighbor and go over and get the key? And <laughs> There's limits to this. Okay. Yeah. Will they bury it in my yard? I, they need a better situation than dropping my $600 computer on my doorstep and just taking the doormat yeah. and putting it on top and will, driving away. Will they quit shaking it and dropping it and shake it and dropping it and kicking it and dropping it? I don't know if that's quite the Amazon delivery service or, say, that's, like a UPS. Because yeah. I used to work there. And yeah. yeah, yeah may, I've seen that happen. Oops, kicked it again. Oops, oh, sorry. kicked it. Oops. And that's not saying anything about no. UPS. It's no, no, just no. the shipping service is kind of rough. Hey, people need to have fun at work at UPS, That's too. not what happened all the time. Okay. Good. Good stuff. All right. Straight ahead, we're going to be talking about uh, how if we just had a little more data and actually became really good at making decisions based on data, you probably wouldn't think the world was so upside down. Interesting discussion straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When asked a simple question about global trends like what percentage of the world's population lives in poverty, why is the world's population increasing, or how many girls finish school, we systematically get the answers wrong. Do you think your guesses would be too high or too low on those numbers? Here to talk with us about why things may actually be better than we think they are is Anna Rosling-Ronland. She is the co-founder of Gapminder, which you can find at gapminder.org. It's a program designed to promote a fact-based worldview everyone can understand. And she joins us uh, now, I believe, from Sweden. Anna, how are you today? Well, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Is So is it true then when, when we are asked questions, I guess, as humans, we tend to uh, overestimate? Is it that we overestimate or underestimate the numbers that we're being asked? I would say um, if we look at uh, numbers that are concerning trend lines and uh, development, we, we systematically uh, think that the world is more dramatic than it actually is. So we usually go for sort of the <laughs> the bad version. Oh, interesting. Are, uh, yeah. But we do so, you say, systematically. So it's it's kind of overall we have a tendency as humans to, I guess, uh, seek out a more dramatic answer than probably the real data would show. Um, yeah, it seems that way. Actually, what we have done, we have asked uh, a set of questions, 12 questions, to uh, 14 countries, people in 14 countries, 12,000 people uh, in total in representative samples. And we ask these questions 
And if people knew nothing and were just guessing without reading the questions, they would actually get four correct answers out of 12, just like by random, because on each question, we have an A, B, C alternative. Hmm. And the thing is, look at, so, so basically going to the zoo, we would end up in a result if they were to pick, you know, ABC bananas without yeah. having to know the questions, they would actually get four, four correct answers. <laughs> While we as humans, we only get two. So we're actually performing worse than random, and that must come from somewhere. So we have a skewed worldview, and it's more, it's perceiving the world as more negative than it actually is. So when we're faced with a question where we do not know the answer, we will pick the most dramatic or most negative one, it seems. That is interesting. But a monkey in the zoo or a gorilla in the zoo or whatever would be able to to pick virtually the same percentage as we do. Yeah, better, yeah. right? Yeah. Holy cow. <laughs> but, 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 the, but the good news is that actually learning uh, the sort of general trends about the world is pretty easy. And we have some rules of thumb you can actually use whenever you're faced in a situation like this, getting questions you don't know the answer about. So oh, good. basically, by, ju- by, just, uh, by just using those rules of thumb from the book, we will actually perform much better than the chimps immediately. <laughs> because the thing is, if we just spend a few minutes learning the basics about how how our brains uh, basically fool us and how uh, how the world's global trends and proportions actually are, we can actually beat the chimp easily. Because remember that the chimp is beating us today, but we can learn uh, and read and think mm. and, re- you know... Yeah, we, we can, can reason. Reshape. So, mm-hmm. so, so we have a... It's not a, a, a like a gloomy image of it has all it, it it has to be like this all the time. No, we can easily actually uh, perform better than this. And is talk to us about before we get into some of the the tools you use to help us uh, uh, understand kind of this misperception we have. Where does the misperception come from? Is is it just human nature? Um, or is I mean I, I look at the fact that a lot of times in the media the only numbers we share are extreme numbers. Yes, I mean that is I, I would say that is sort of the the way we communicate news. So for something to become a, a newsworthy story, it has to consist of some drama, and it has to most often it consists of something bad has happened, especially if it is a story from far away. We will not hear anything like everyday stories or positive stories from the other side of the world. Usually, we only hear the gloomy stories from there. And of course, that will actually shape how we see the world around us. And then I think our brains are wired to be very good at actually uh, uh, recognizing dangers and scary things and react on them instantly. Mm. So it's like our brain... Uh, is looking for those stories all the time, and we um, we tend to over in our brains as well. We tend to remember the most nasty stories the most. So sometimes people are saying to us that, uh, asking if we are afraid that media is trying to skew our worldview. If that is a problem, but I would say, I mean, even 
when the media, which it's most often do, uh, actually try do, does its best to present the world as it actually is. And actually presenting the things happening that they should report about, we still have the problem of our brains actually just remembering the most extreme stories. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I would say the brain is, is, is skewing a lot for us. So if we just learn how to uh, take control over our thinking a little bit, I think we can actually uh, consume the media in a much more constructive way. Oh, that's great. It really is. It's such an important thing, idea. Um, Talk about, give us some examples of some of these kind of misperceptions or overly exaggerated negative views that we might have. What what did you have in your book that talked about that? Um, so, 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 I mean, one of them that would be related to the media, that would be that um, something to be, I, I, I talked about it a bit before, people usually say that the world is just getting worse. You hear it in, in many different settings in many different places. And if you look around, I, I mean, we have a lot of things actually getting better over time. A lot of trends in the world are actually improving, but no one will report about slow, positive trends. Instead, we hear as soon as the trend has a break in it, then we hear about that break. Mm. And as a result, we will only hear about the bad things going on, even though the overall curve is a positive one. And actually, it might probably be the overall curve that is of interest for us to understand the world around us. Right. I think that is one thing. And uh, another thing could be that we very often, when we, when we hear stories, they are often consisting about, uh, of dichotomies. We love stories where, you, where we have someone being good and someone being evil, or where you have a poor and rich. And always when we do that, we forget about the majority that is someone in, somewhere in between, which also skews the way we see the world, because we think about these extremes and we, and we forget about the majority. Mm. So all this creates like a huge over dramatic worldview, which we are, uh, which are, is guiding us when we try to understand the world around us. And I think it, it can have a, an impact which makes the world look much more scary and much more frightening than it actually is. Mm, that's so and I true. Think that can be a problem. We might, we might make the wrong decisions and, and we might feel so stressed that so we might even be uh, passive, you know, and <laughs> yeah. think it's not worth doing anything because everything will fail anyhow. Yeah, but or, if we if we actually saw these positive trends, maybe we could uh, feel less stressed. And if we realized how wrong we usually are about the world, we might uh, get this feeling of excitement and and curiosity, thinking, how could we be so wrong, and how can we fix this? I love that. It's uh, and it seems so obvious, right? And the, uh, again, we're speaking we're speaking with Anna Rosling Ronland, who um, is the author of the book Factfulness: Ten Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. Uh, d- define for us um, factfulness. I think I think it's a fascinating concept. Well, so so factfulness is basically. Uh, the stress-relieving habit of basing your opinions on facts, you could say. Yeah. Because And the reason it is, fa- is stress-releasing, one thing is it's, it's the stress-relieving to actually know that, you're ri- that, that, that you know what's going on. It's usually stressful 
with ambiguity and, and, you know, not known entities. And also it's less stressful as much of the data actually shows us that the world is not as bad as we think. Right. You can yeah. relax. It, it, it also yeah. seems like – because a lot of us, it's, it seems like as you have the freedom to uh, communicate and to speak um, and you have, a, you have a channel like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, everybody feels a need to express their opinion. But only some of those opinions are even based in fact, right? Some of them are opinions yeah. of opinions of opinions. I mean, that, I, I think that is the most common way we do things. So, so, so I would say factfulness is sort of a, a friendly reminder <laughs> yeah. that it might be better that we actually check the facts now and then and that we realize that our brains easily go bananas and, and <laughs> have us believe that the world around us is much more dramatic than it actually is. It's so true. What do we do? Give us some examples of, of some of the tools. I know in the book um, you, you actually give us tools that we can use to make sure we are you know, getting closer to factful. Uh, what are some things we can do? Well, um, if we, uh, we can take one example, that we very often, we're very good at, at, at generalizing. We have one of the ten instincts. We, so basically, the book is divided into ten chapters, and each chapter is dealing with a certain instinct. So if, if we, for instance, take the generalization uh, chapter, it has to do with, uh, our, that um, we love to make to group things into categories, and basically we have to make categories because otherwise the world would be too <laughs> too many decisions and too many uh, what do you call it uh, when you see things you have too many impressions. Yeah. We have to do groupings, but the problem is that very often we're making the groupings uh, too few of them. For instance, we might we might use um, uh, the, um, the the poor and the rich that I was mentioning previously, and that are, I, I think when we hear that, a bell should go off in our brain saying, "Wait, that are, those are only two categories." Right. To understand the world, we need more categories. Two are too few. Could I add one or two categories more in between, for instance? Mm-hmm. Or when we say, um, we easily say, for instance. Muslims, and that sort of people tend to think that that is enough to describe a group, but that that is a group that consists of so many different people True. from so many different countries and so many variations in how they perceive uh, their reli- religiousness or whatever it's called in English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just just that we have to we, we should we should always. Then, as a rule of thumb, so basically, in the end of each chapter, first we have a chapter talking about the instinct and and explaining and uh, different kinds of data around it. But at the end of the chapter, we actually give some practical rules of thumb in a bullet point list. So, so we hope that people can go back to the book after they have read it and use it as a handbook to think more clearly. And when it comes to the generalization instinct, for instance, we just say like this. To control the generalization instinct, question your categories. Mm. That is the key thing. And for instance, we say, look for differences within groups, especially when the groups are large. Look for ways to split them into smaller, more precise categories. That is one of the bullet points. 
Mm. And the second would be look for similarities across groups. If you find striking similarities between different groups, consider whether your categories are relevant. <laughs> and then we have a third one. <laughs> look for differences across groups. Do not assume that what applies for one group might be that you and other people living on level four are unconscious of soldiers applies for others. Interesting. Basically, I mean, and, and, and those rules of thumb, I mean, now when I say them to you, they might not mean that much, but the whole chapter has given like very uh, um, vivid examples. And then we, we boil it down to something that you can sort of rely on and go back to later, we're hoping. Mm. You know, it's interesting, just as you even say that, um, it, it goes back to a quote uh, of Bill Gates about your book, that it's one of the most important books I've ever read, he said, an indispensable mm. guide to thinking clearly about the world. Mm. We we live yeah. in the information age. We probably need to make yes. sure we're we're thinking clearly about the data. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's a luxurious point in time when we finally have information to consume. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful, and we have all the data. Now it's a matter of actually learning how to control your brain in this information-dense times. And, you, and I think we still have a bit to go to be, um, ha- have sort of quality in how we do that. Yeah. Give us, if you would, a few more instincts that we, that we could f- overcome by, by understanding and reading your book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say uh, one of the instincts would be the uh, singularity instinct. And we have, uh, the thing is that very often, I, I think you, if you close your eyes, you can probably remember that you've seen sometime on the billboards or in the, uh, uh, aid agencies, uh, advocacy, uh, you suddenly see a huge number. Mm-hmm. And it looks very alarming, and you realize something is going bad and we have to do things. But the thing is, uh, in the singularity instinct, we try to teach that as soon as you see a single number, you need to remember that for that number to make sense, you need to do something with it. You need to compare it with something or divide it by something to make the number meaningful. Mm. Because especially when you talk about global issues, counting something on a global level will always give you huge numbers. Right. So one example could be uh, like in the reporting from the UNICEF looking at how many kids under the age of one who dies who died in 2016, and it was about 4 million kids dying that year before it, they, they became one-year-old. And I mean, that is a horrible it's number. It's a horrible number, yeah. It's a horrible number. But if we go backwards, in the 1950s, it was 14 million mm. kids dying. And at that point, the population was also much smaller. So if we would, would make a rate of it, the differences would be even bigger. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I think one of the biggest and most important things to remember here is we have slow and steady progress in so many different fields. And to, to understand that, we have to look at the global proportions and the global, uh, the global trends. That is important to understand things. And we have to remember those uh, to compare and divide. Otherwise, 
we will always end up in a situation where we we cannot see the full picture. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And so so insightful, so valuable. Anna, thank you so much for your great work and uh, your time, spending your time with us. Again, Anna Rosling Ronland, uh, she is the author of the book Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. And uh, boy, oh boy, do we not need to start taking it a lot deeper as far as our understanding and creating more richness in our understanding Especially, it's something that we can do. This is something we can do to make our knowledge even more effective, more specific, um, and, and, and more, I think, useful to all of us. We will continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on the program to help us all uh, you know, become a little better by uh, understanding the data a little better. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. You know, whether it's uh, whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about, you know, international politics or famine or whatever is going on in the world, as we just learned, the more information that we can gather and garner, the better, Right. But instead, uh, a lot of us feel very comfortable with minimal information and then maximal uh, uh, beliefs and um, and argumentation and all of these other things that go along with what complicate our lives, what complicate our relationships. Isn't it crazy that many times when we have when we are the least informed, we feel the very most confident? I uh, talked the other day about Fortnite, a video game. All the kids are out there playing. And um, a lot of parents don't like it. They just don't like it. And if you ask them why, then it's usually, well, my kids like it and they're spending too much time on it. And then I just ask, have you ever played it with them? Have you ever gone to see what they're doing? When they're, Well, I mean, I've walked by, yeah, and it's just shooting people. They're just shooting people. Have you ever watched a game fully all the way through? Have you ever seen what is going on? No. So we have all of this fear, but we're not informed. And uh, it, this this also becomes a big part of our relationships, right? Because the reality is none of us in our in our interactions with others, none of us have all of the data. But boy, we sure act as if we do, don't we? we? We need to, in our conversations, assume we don't know. And even if you know, don't assume you understand everything about why that person would drive that way, why that person would say such a rude thing, why that person would would be completely frustrated and and angry about something i um we had a a friend when we were raising our family and younger that wouldn't would not absolutely would not let their child sleep over anywhere just wouldn't just stuff can happen they just horrible wouldn't let it happen no. I mean, and to a point where it was it was hard for the for the girl because this young girl was all of her friends were sleeping over. They all got to do it. So she'd get to go stay there until, you know, late and then she'd have to go home with her parents. And it makes sense, right? And uh, a lot of other parents were frustrated, like just like what? You don't trust us. You don't think we're you think we're going to do something to your daughter. Is that what this is about? It's not. But 
come to find out the girl had been the mother had been abused as a child at a sleepover and it still part of her mindset it hurts it it hurts bad and the minute you understand that that's what the mother went through you understand why she protects her daughter that way it makes it understandable these things don't always make things right or wrong whatever that is but it does make it understandable so if you want more power with people Try to understand them more. Assume that you don't have the full story. Assume that there's more going on upstream that is maybe coming into this uh, the pool of water that you're dealing with, the pool or the situation that you have to engage in. Don't assume you know. Don't assume you're informed. In fact, the more confusing the situation is, the more likely it is that you don't know what's going on. So watch it. Pay attention to it. Slow down the conversation, uh, just like we were just learning uh, from Anna Rosling Ronanland. Slow down the the interpretation. We don't need to jump to conclusions. We don't need to um, we don't need to make something a bigger problem than it is. So just remember, none of us have all the data, and if you don't have the data, don't just quickly make it up. Go try to figure it out. Go try to gather more data. And then see if it doesn't improve your condition. Anyway, just a little idea. We all need more understanding regardless, right? Not easy, this life, but uh, totally worth it. And even worth it with people that drive us crazy. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. When you have a leaky faucet or a broken fence, you pull out your toolbox, right? And then you find the right tool for the job and take care of it. It's easy to identify what tool to use when you're dealing with objects. But what about people? We all have holes, tears, imperfections. Wouldn't it be nice to have a toolbox for relationships that you could carry wherever you go? Alan C. Fox, the author of the New York Times bestseller, People Tools, 54 Strategies for Building Relationships, Creating Joy, and Embracing Prosperity, joined us not long ago to discuss this with us. I began the interview by asking, did you write the book because you think people don't understand relationships? Absolutely, Matt. Uh, I think that getting along well with other people is the most important skill that we can have. And when you think about it, that's not something that's taught in schools. You just have to kind of pick it up from your family and friends. And that's why I've written the People Tools series, uh, including the most recent, out recently, People Tools for Love and Relationships. But relationships are where it's at. Oh, totally. And um, it's so funny, too, because you are a person. Everyone's we're, we're, we're people, and yet the tools tend to elude us. Why, why is that? Why do you think we don't teach this stuff in school? Why, why isn't this more top of the list? Well, I think as more and more people uh, work and live closer and closer together, I think it becomes more and more important, and we're still uh, back training people for the last century rather than the uh, this century, where I think getting along with old people is going to be number one. It's so true. You have a great quote in the book, I'd rather be alone and together than be together yet alone. What do you mean by that? Well, you know... I'm kind of an introvert personally, but I'd rather be by myself doing things I enjoy than, you know, we've all been with someone and there's that, that awkward, uncomfortable silence, things that we want to say or they want to say that aren't said. So, you know, I'd rather be with myself than be with someone and have it not work. 
I mean, being by someone else and having it work well is, of course, an excellent goal. Yeah, it truly is. And it's um, – because there's nothing really worse than being with somebody when you don't feel good about yourself. You don't feel like you even relate to this person and you just kind of feel stuck. Absolutely. Where where do you go? Um, where do you go? Because it's interesting. You brought up you're an introvert. I, I'm actually fairly introverted too, and nobody thinks that because you know you're in this industry where you're out speaking or or on the radio or whatever. Um, does that make a big difference in in how we relate to people, whether we're an introvert or extrovert? I think it does make a difference because extroverts are much more willing to be out there, talk to people, and and meet people. So, but I think for both introverts and extroverts, I think the technique of getting along with others is um, is, is is really important. Is that um, maybe start teaching us what are some of the lessons and the tools that we should be using or could be using that are in your books? Well, my first chapter in People Tools for Love and Relationships is the key is you, and that's good news. And bad news. It's good news because you have control of your relationships, and you can make them work better. You, you, you don't have to wait for your partner. It's also bad news because you can't rely on them. You know, when I was growing up, it was clear. You grow up, fall in love, get married, live happily ever after. Yeah. And if you, if you don't live happily ever after, and I didn't, um, uh, then it's easy. The problem is you picked the wrong person. Yeah, right. Mistakes. And then so dump them and get somebody else. Well, I did that twice and found out that that wasn't working, so I thought maybe I'd better work on myself. Yeah. So the most important thing and the first important thing is to be the right person. And, and what what does that mean? I mean, because I guess, is that me being the right person generally or specifically for this person I'm trying to deal with, or both? I think it means both, uh, Matt, because if you're not the right person, you know, you can't turn it on and off. Yeah. And uh, by being the right person, I mean, first of all, you have to be authentic. And, you know, we're all engaged in courtship behavior. You meet someone, and they like tennis. Oh, I love tennis. And then you go out and quickly take some tennis lessons. But, uh, you know, I uh, I know a woman, and the day she was married, after the ceremony, she said to her new husband, now I don't have to ever go out on your darn boat again. <laughs> and she had pretended to like it. Well, you know, I don't think that marriage uh, lasted very long. Uh-huh. And it's important to, um, uh, to, to be authentic. Be authentic in all of your relationships. If you like something, say so. If you don't, say so. Well, Tell people what you want. Otherwise, yeah, what are you making? I guess you're just you're living a lie. I mean, he's sitting there thinking, you've liked my boat? I thought you liked my boat for years. No, I've hated your boat. So- yeah, right, exactly. And, you know, there's another one. He talked about living a lie, and, and, and in many cases we do. And uh, I have a chapter in the People Tools book that truth is the is the long cut. You know, sometimes when you lie... You make people happy right now, short term, but when they find out, then the stuff hits the fans. So, yeah. You know, I, I just think it's important to, to, to not lie and not mis- misrepresent yourself. Yeah, because in the end, you're going to pay for it one way or another. Yeah. Right? And and I guess that's the key is the sooner the better. But it seems like, too, a lot of this is um, I mean, people come in a variety of sources and and, and, a diff- and shapes and, and paradigms and assumptions. How do I how do I deal with kind of the the, the dynamics of so many different people I'm going to come across? Well, I have to uh, believe that you have to get along with each type of person, and there are a number of personality types. And um, 
You know, I, I, I think, uh, however, to get to know people better, for example, another chapter is the best defense is no defense. You know, hmm. if you fight with people all the time, you're never going to find out what they're about. So if somebody, uh, if my wife, uh, something she'd like me to do differently, I can either have an intent to defend and say, no, I don't do it that way, or you, you do it too, or you're worse than I am, or I can have an intent to learn and just ask her what she's really talking about. That makes her feel better. And I learn a lot more on how to get along with her. Yeah. So, you know, being real and asking people and not being defensive, I think, is a very good idea. Yeah, today we've been talking about how, you know, everybody's got an angle now. And you don't even know – everybody's kind of a little defensive. And everybody's protecting their little, you know, part of this environment, whether it's, you know, a genetic difference or a psychological difference or a gender stereotype – Everyone's got an angle, and the idea of being don't be as defensive. Just just allow allow stuff to be. How do you how do you do that? How do I not build my identity around you know my weirdest or not weirdest my most eccentric part of me, <laughs> my most different part of me? Well, you know, Matt, I work in real estate, and occasionally uh, properties for sale. W A F, which means with all faults. And that means, you know, if it has a leaky roof or broken windows, too bad. The buyer's got to fix it. Hmm. And I think I apply that with people. With all faults, we all have faults. And if you recognize, it's, it's, it's okay to not be perfect. Nobody who's ever lived has been perfect. Right. So accept the fact that you and everyone you meet is with all faults. And just accept that. And don't, uh, don't fight against it. And uh, you'll have a much happier life. Yeah. Yeah, that perfectionism, it's a big deal because then I end up trying to make everyone else around me. That's got to be a relationship killer, trying to make everyone else around me being more perfect. That's absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, when you try to take on the problems of everybody else, uh, your children, your parents, your spouse, your friends, <laughs> I think you're going to burn out pretty quickly and uh, never uh, fully uh, – you know, I find it's enough to control myself, let alone controlling other people. Oh, yeah. No, it's exactly – I mean, yeah, getting your head in the game is hard enough. One of your people tools I know is – and I know you're careful about it – is the concept of abandoning ship. You know, if it's too – if the ship's going down, there is a point you probably need to get off the ship. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm a very loyal purple person. I've had people work for me and uh, with me for 30, 40 years. I've been married for almost 35 years. But, you know, if the ship is sinking, uh, maybe you, uh, your loyalty to that particular ship um, is about time to abandon. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, people don't change that much. Patterns persist, which is one of my people tools. And if you've had the same problem for years and years, you're not likely to change. They're not likely to change. At some point... As difficult as it may be, it's better to abandon ship and get out of one relationship and make room in your life for another and better relationship than to stay there for the rest of your life. Yeah. How do you how do you know when it's time? What what do you suggest? What are the signs you look for um, to know that you know what this is one that's probably not repairable? Well, I I, I think that um, you know I have a tool in my first book on people tools called uh, the belt buckle. And uh, that is, I, I heard an uh, interview with an uh, all, All-American defensive football player who said the great runners, you know, they can fake with their eyes, they can fake with their head, they can fake with their shoulders, they can't fake with their belt buckle. Hmm. 
That's where they're going. I watch their belt buckle. And I take that to mean I watch what people do, not what they say. Someone says I'll be on time, but you know, every time I've gotten together with them for the last two years, they've been half an hour late. I assume they're going to be late. So watch your partner's belt buckle. Watch what they do. And if they do stuff that is unacceptable, like you know, physical violence, emotional uh, uh, abuse, abuse yeah. it's not going to change. You may hope it will. Yeah. It won't. That's a bad bet. So get out. And especially it won't change if you don't change, right? So if you keep taking abuse, then you're just reinforcing that they can abuse you. But if you just say, I'm done, that might be the beginning of a change. Absolutely. And that's the only way to do it. Yeah. You know, they, they say in negotiation, you got to walk away from the table at least once. And um, I'm not ad- ad- advocating that for relationships, but sometimes it's absolutely necessary. That was Alan C. Fox, author of the book People Tools, 54 Strategies for Building Relationships, Creating Joy, and Embracing Prosperity. Again, relationships, they're not easy. They are worth it and uh, worth gathering as many tools in your toolbox as you can to live a healthier, happier life. That's why we do the show. We'll continue the journey more of the Matt Townsend Show straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Friday to you. Uh, Dr. Matt here along with Becca and Terry. The gang is gathered. And uh, by the way, overlooking the campus here at Brigham Young University as we watch graduates walking around having the mandatory pictures taken. Oh, yeah. They. The funny thing is they they can hardly wait to be done and get out of here. Oh, that's right. They're, they're commemorating the day, but, but the smile is, I'm yeah. leaving. But the parents are so happy. Holy cow, never happier than that day because they finally did it, and now you know that you, you know, only have one more bill to pay. That's why they're smiling. Life is so good. So uh, so much to cover today. Boy, oh boy, historic um, day. North and South Korea have now formally vowed to end the Korean War. They're done. They're, say, they're saying both uh, the leaders of North and South Korea meeting at the, the DMZ on the line. They literally had a handshake across the line. Then they both stepped into each other's country and uh, pretty powerful little moment. That was pretty – that was pretty incredible – some of the history in the making. Some of the details about that the like the peace house. Yeah, they said they had the table made specifically for this for this moment. And like the diameter was, I, I think it was centimeters, but two thousand and eighteen centimeters. Oh, how neat! To represent the year, there was like symbolism in every detail of. Oh, that's incredible! They yeah. planted a tree, I guess. Oh yeah. I don't know if they planted one, but they threw dirt near one. I don't know what the symbolic uh, nature of all of that is, but it is history happening, folks. So just, you know, take it in. This is a big, big deal. And uh, Kim Jong-un really surprising a lot of people. Many are saying it's because apparently the mountain fell in on his nuclear testing facility because he would do a lot of underground testing. And apparently the mountain fell in on the testing center. Yes. Someone's getting fired over that one. Yeah. But the reality is, too, is uh, apparently even Kim Jong-un is ready to move forward. 
and is already making concessions before any negotiations. Remember, President Trump's going to also be coming around and uh, meeting with Kim Jong-un as well. So, boy, oh boy, was it was it because he got all tough-nosed? Was it because President Trump was calling him Rocket Man? Was it the tough stance of the Trump administration? Or was it just time? Boy, who knows? It's really interesting. I think, I mean, I didn't see this coming. No way. Well, and what's with the security where you have your 12 security guys run around the car. That's pretty neat. <laughs> it it doesn't sound like the best security. I mean, I'm not a security expert, but when the car's going 40 miles an hour and your guys are trying to keep up with it, it's a whole different ball game. Yeah, by the time something happens and they have to stop and say put up some sort of security perimeter, yeah. maybe they're all winded. Repel an attack, they're all like, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> Their hands are all on their They're hips. all taking a oh. knee and yeah. Anyway, that's a pretty neat thing. That's going on, as, of course, um, and uh, President Macron, they've ended the love fest, and he's he's apparently leaving. Angela Merkel will be coming to, today, I, I think. I think it's today, yes. So that should be interesting. And they, yeah, they, they don't always get along, Trump, President Trump and she, he's, he He doesn't feel like she gets his humor. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people feel that way. <laughs> so... Um, anyway, that's exciting uh, news as well. So let's get to the rest of the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? President Donald Trump on Thursday voiced support for doing away with the Electoral College for presidential elections in favor of popular vote because the latter would be, quote, much easier to win. The president's support for popular vote presidential election came as an aside during a freewheeling Thursday morning interview with Fox and Friends, the Fox News morning show that he's known to watch and from which he receives most unflinchingly positive coverage, this article says. Really? Yeah. Uh, Trump, if you watch the video of the 30-minute discussion they had with him, there were some flinches because they were trying to jump in. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, and he just kept going and going and going. <laughs> it was really fun to watch. Trump made the remark amid a larger point about public figures who publicly support him in, turning benef- in turn benefiting from a boost of popularity from Trump supporters, oh. uh, Kanye West. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, we won the election, and we won, we won it, and uh, we won it easily. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it was close. And by the way, they also like to always talk about Electoral College. They don't. You do. Yeah. Uh, well, it's an, elector- it's an election based on Electoral College. I would rather have a popular election, but it's a totally different campaign, Trump said. It says... Though you were running, if you're a runner and you're practicing for a 100-yard dash as opposed to the mile. Yeah. Again, um, uh, this was, what, 16 months ago he won this. Yeah. I mean. It's still a topic. Some people are saying. I'm, I'm hearing. Uh, not, yeah, I'm not hearing that. Okay. I don't know where he's hearing that. It was just, I, I love that he did that yesterday. Yeah. Because presidents don't do that. They don't just get on the phone. And let down all pretense and just have right. at it. It's great. Yeah. Don't need to do that. No. Defense Secretary James Mattis on Thursday defended the Iran nuclear deal as uh, his boss, President Trump, appeared ready to withdraw the United States from the accord. Testifying in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Mattis said that the verification requirements and uh, nuclear inspection regimes built into the Obama broker deal are pretty robust as far as our intrusive ability. He added that it is a valid question as to whether these provisions are the deal of the deal are sufficient ahead of the May 12th deadline for the president to certify that Iran is in compliance with the terms of the deal. The U.S. is negotiating with its European partners to seek improvements in the existing framework. 
Right, okay. So again, as Trump was on Fox and Friends saying, I may pull out, Mattis was in on Congress saying, no, we're going to, we like yeah, it. Good. It's we're a pretty good. good deal. You know, they used to send like a mass memo to everyone in the office, yeah. so everyone was on well, the same page. they had a communications director. Yeah, that, right? yeah that's what they need. Is- Authorities in California used DNA from genealogy websites to find Joseph James D'Angelo, the suspected Golden State Killer. Wow. According to the Sacramento County District's office, officials compared DNA from crime scene to online genetic profiles. Investigators began to surveil D'Angelo last week and scraped his DNA from something he threw in the garbage. Because once you put it out to the curb, oh yeah, it's not your private property anymore. He was arrested early early this week and expected to face multiple charges of murder, assault. They're digging in his backyard, you know, all wonderful details. But they found his DNA. Yeah, they submitted it to Twenty Three and Me or Ancestry, one of these places that'll do your DNA uh-huh. profile. You found out you're kind of Italian. Yeah, I'm a t- um, not, oh, kind of Italian, and I'm sixty percent Irish, which is kind of funny in my family, anyways. Seven percent. Irish or 7% Greek or Italian. And so they submitted it, got his DNA profile. It said, you know, they always go, you're related to these people. And then they just work back to yeah. him. Okay. Allegedly. They haven't really explained it, but that yeah. that's how it could work. That right? sounds like a simplistic uh, ex- explanation of how they do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they said it, sort they, through all this DNA. They said it was highly complicated. Yeah. And I just said, oh, they no, just worked their way back. It totally sounds like it. And finally, sheriff's deputies arrested a Florida subway employee after a car was slathered with sauce and jalapenos outside of a restaurant on Sunday. Mm. It was like a whole sub on my car, the Nissan Ultima owner, who wanted to stay anonymous, said. Yeah. He's a subway regular, apparently. He had parked near the restaurant but didn't go in that night. And Julian Tribbiani Rosignagel. Mm-hmm. Sounds right. Yeah, she's 50. She was arrested Monday on criminal mischief, a misdemeanor, according to the county sheriff's office. About 7.45 p.m. Sunday, deputies suspect she damaged the customer's car by pouring subway sauce and sliced jalapenos all over oh, it. Wow. The car also had two punctured tires and, and a bent license plate. The customer said Tuesday that it was more than one sauce. It was lots of goo, mustard, mayonnaise, Thousand Island dressing, and uh, hot sauce, plus on. a gallon or so of peppers loaded on it. What really bothered him, though, was the damage to his tires. The woman said that she didn't slash the car's tires. I don't have it in me to do that, she said. Oh, Another nice employee thing. was behind the vandalism, and he was fired, or she, that employee was fired but not arrested, she said. The only thing I did was put the mustard on it. That's it. I, I put the mu- and one, one tomato. Subway, drive fresh. <laughs> have you ever done the Subway driving diet? I can't say I have. You don't eat any of the Subway sandwich. You just put it all on your car. All on your car. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Does that force you to walk to work and then? Uh-huh. And, yeah, you have to walk to work and you didn't eat any of the stuff. So boy, it's just a great way to lose weight. That sounds, that sounds really revolutionary. It's not even just revolutionary. It's revolutionary and good for you. Hmm. Well, I mean, and I can imagine like after cleaning off all that mustard and stuff off your car, you're probably not going to have an appetite for it. No. No. So, and it's carb free, if you're counting carbs. Pun intended. Yeah, actually, it's not carb free. Carburetor. They've got a carb, so it's got, it's only got one carb though. One carb diet. Yeah, it's a carburetor diet. I think we've incredibly we've invented we, something incredible here. Yeah, we did. <laughs> It's pretty amazing. Hey, uh, we, ne- up next, we'll be talking more about our diets. Uh, Karen Mangum will be in the studio. She traveled down here for, um, you know, graduation events, I believe, here at Brigham Young University. We'll be talking about the principles of intuitive eating. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us in studio is Karen Mangum. She's a licensed registered dietitian, a seasoned recipe developer, food blogger, nutrition consultant, and happens to be uh, – has a great blog, InsideKaren'sKitchen.com, but happens to be right uh, now on campus because her cute little boy, Tanner Mangum, is graduating. Yep, he is. Uh, how cool is that? I know. He's graduating in sociology. He's oh, worked very hard. This has been a great? fascinating field for him. Well, especially, yeah, because he's got to understand like the mind and the team and all of these well, things and, he was doing the, anyway. And the community and what's happening yeah. in our culture. And he's been working with a professor in the area of isolation and loneliness oh, really? related to, even to um, uh, older individuals, but also this rising generation of social media and yes. phone use and <gasps> kids feeling very, very alone. Yeah, he needs to write a book. Oh, no. No. I mean, eventually. Uh, Well, who knows? His experiences have been varied and very interesting. And he's excited about his future. He really is thinking about postgraduate work. So he'll stay because he'll play another season. And And then I guess he can go to school for a year. Yeah, he can go to school. Um, Yeah, he's got some big plans. So he's excited. Is he, um, I, I mean, is this not the greatest thing a parent can do when you get to watch your kid graduate. Yesterday at the commencement, I have to say it was very, very like, um, you know, hair raising on your arms, just like, like, (laughs) you know, goosebumps. It's really exciting. And the speakers were fantastic. And Uh, it was a very, um, in, you know, warm, supportive environment. And, and one of the speakers, particularly it was the, um, Director of the Alumni Association just talked about how important this is, not just to the to the graduate, but yeah. to the families. Yeah. And think about yeah. us. We helped make this happen. We made it happen, and you did. And and then you drive down all the time to support him and to support your daughter on the basketball right. team. I mean, yeah. oh, there's nothing better though when you can just say, "Okay." Goal accomplished. Yeah, it was good. So, oh, I love it. So one of the That's fun cool. things we did, though, yesterday, Matt, was really fun. So we, we went over to the basketball um, uh, at what do you call that? That the, new building. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And because um, Abby, of course, plays on She's... the team. And so we all grabbed a basketball. We were all shooting around. How and fun. And then we got this fun picture of all of us standing Playing there ball. looking really fierce. But and... you were dressed in oh, yeah. suits. We were dressed in suits. Yeah, and, yeah, ties. yeah, yeah, yeah. How so nice. it was really fun. But what? To, how fun, too, that you also – I'm glad that you could come in live because we never get to see you. You always come on to talk food uh, ideas and healthy eating ideas. Last time you were on, you introduced us to five principles of intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And uh, today you're going to give us another five. Right. You're like really trying to make us intuitive eaters. I think we need to be. Yeah. You know, as a registered dietitian who's worked in this field for quite a while now, I have seen so much pain and suffering, mm. particularly in the field where I have been working in the last 17 years. I've been working with people who have weight loss surgery and they present themselves really broken. Yeah. They have, um, you know, tried so many different diets and have felt like failures. So when they um, come to us, you know, granted, this is a last resort type of approach. Mm-hmm. It's pretty drastic to oh, yeah. reduce the size of your stomach. But in, in some ways, it helps you become. And so we teach them how to become cool. intuitive eaters yeah. because they now will be much more in tune with those signals. So the last time we chatted two weeks ago, we talked a lot about honoring your hunger and respecting your fullness. Right. And, you know, so really listening to your body signals. And so today we're going to talk a little bit more about now, um, you know, moving forward a little bit. And one of the first things we want to talk about is really understanding um, or re 
refinding, I don't know what's the word. Rediscovering. Um, Rediscovering your satisfaction factor. Like, can you really enjoy food just for food at sake? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Instead of like needing that satiated, bloated, heavy feeling, Mm -hmm. can you just actually just enjoy the taste of it yes for a while and remember that food is not just taste yeah. and that's what we teach individuals it's it's um you know it's textures Texture. and smells uh-huh. and the sight of it even hearing the crackling and sizzling of food so you make it much more of a sensual experience yeah. if you can but it does require you to slow down and a lot of people just don't want to do that so that's a, so true a good example last night we went out to dinner <clears throat> after the graduation we went up to a wonderful Taiwan Thai, um, I guess it's really a Thai restaurant up in Lehigh, and the, we all ordered a variety of things to share. Yeah, and you know it was a big table of people, and dishes were being passed back and forth, and you know there was a little bit of a feeling like, oh, am I going to get my share? Because everybody, you know, the big boys well, yeah, yeah, down yeah. there at the end of the <laughs> end of the table, the brothers are all yeah. just like eating up and. So we actually had to order more food because there was it was going so fast. It was going so fast, but at the same time, I found a dish. It was a red curry that was so delicious to me. Interesting. I slowed down. I didn't really care about so Everything much the else. rest. I just really wanted to focus on the yeah. flavors of that red curry over my brown rice, and I ate it slowly and enjoyed the smells. I even did. I pulled did the bowl really? up and smelled it, and I could I could smell the lemongrass. I could taste it. The the curry. It was it was just yummy. really, really the whole yummy, yummy. The really. whole experience, right? So it was. You see that with judges like the judge television uh, food prep shows or whatever they're called. Um, you see them actually. They go very slow. They only have a few bites, and they just enjoy it. They savor the whole thing. When, the whole thing. That's why I'd be a horrible judge because <laughs> I'd be through the dish before. <laughs> Before I've even able to taste it. I think what it does for you, though, it helps you to realize that you don't need as much food to feel satisfied. It's true, huh? Right? Yeah. So you eat a little bit less. That's like I like sushi for that reason. Yeah. I never seem yes. to get really full. Right. But, but, oh, you feel so satisfied. And there's got to be just, you know, nutritionally, there has to be a, some fat in the dish itself, too. Okay, so yeah. Because f- fat is one of the things that so, actually that a, signals chemically. A, okay, it does it. Once it hits the small intestine, and it is the last thing to leave the gut. So once it hits the small intestine, it triggers a, to your brain through a hormonal pathway that you are full You're and full. that you are satisfied and you don't need any more. That's I did not know that. Yeah. So we should just drink some fat. <laughs> Then well, there is some suggestion there, that if there's you... There's probably better ways. <laughs> probably better ways. <laughs> Good. Give us some more, Karen. What are hey, some other ways to be intuitive? Well, this is a big one. Then this next one, it's called honor your feelings without using food. Okay. Okay. So yeah. How do we you do that? know that you yeah. probably have seen this. And in, in a lot of my patients, they'll use food as a way to deal with stress, with anger, with frustration, with boredom, mm. loneliness. So a lot of maybe late night binge eating mm-hmm. might be reflected in those um, stressor triggers. Yeah. And what we realize is that food can't fix those feelings. We have to come to the understanding and the realization that food cannot fix those feelings. Uh, we have it's to, true. you know, it'll, it'll temporarily numb them, and uh-huh. and maybe you feel like, wow, that gave me a little pleasure there that I kind of yeah. needed. Yeah. But in the end, it'll make it worse. That's why comfort foods that's, come to mind, right? Like it, I need my mac and cheese. Yeah. Well, and if you're hungry, that's okay. 
That's, that's okay because we're yeah. honoring our hunger. But, but if you really are not hungry and you're using food for reasons that have nothing to do mm. with being hungry, then, you know, and over time, the pattern of eating is one thing that we look at. So mm. food won't solve the problem. No. You'll ultimately have to deal with the source of the emotion eventually. And so maybe it's... it. I always encourage patients to sort of stop a minute, ask yourself, am I hungry? And if I'm not, then what, am, what, did, what is it I want this food to do for me? Interesting. What is it I want this food to do for me? That's such I want a great it question. To, yeah, to take away my, hung, my anger. I yeah. want it to take away my frustration with my kids or my, my spouse or whatever the situation may be. That's good. And, um, I, I, then you could so, just instead just throw it. Do anything else with it. Can like, you do I mean, that? I don't know. That might get rid of the emotion well, just you, as good as You know better it. than anybody yeah. maybe what just to do with that emotion. Just it up into a big Ooh. bowl of macaroni and then throw the – Well, throw it away. That gets a little violent. Throw it away. But so honor your feelings without using the food. Yeah. but yeah. And actually, so I guess part of that is just recognizing what you really are doing this for. Yes. And and then maybe just think about it. Think. You have to think that for a minute. That does make it – it's now Now you're in the Ooh. present moment. And and sometimes we, we just don't want to deal with that no. hard emotion. Uh-uh. That's the hard thing. Yeah, right. All right. So another wonderful intuitive principle is um, the idea of respecting our bodies. Mm. And this is hard for for people who perhaps have gained weight and don't feel comfortable, don't don't really like – you know what's going on with their yeah. bodies, and and especially in our culture of thinness, and yeah. oh, it's just really, really hard to, especially you know, bathing suit season. Yeah. It's like, oh, I just Ugh. don't want to go there. So, you know, we have to come to an understanding, though. Everybody is different. Like my shoe size is a size ten. I'm never going to fit into Cinderella's size six. I'm just not going to be there. I had a a sister growing up who was much smaller than I am. I'm, you know, I'm 5'10, really, really tall. She's maybe 5'6, 105 Uh, pounds, you know. Little waifs. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I was always comparing myself to her, always. And um, finally, I think it was my mom who finally just said, Karen, you are statuesque. You know, you're never going to be tiny and petite, but yeah. you're statuesque and you're beautiful. And she really helped me to feel like even at my size, you're good enough. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good, and I'm never going to be that other. And so you have. Well, to and just... your sister will never be statuesque. No, and she'll never be five ten. And you could take her. <laughs> you could just. I can. <laughs> you can. You could tackle her right down. The ground. Not that I want to, but um, but because... but that also says that, we, and we can all feel really good in the body we've been given, and yes. just keep it healthy. Keep it healthy. And so appreciate just, you know, even if we're not at the size that we want to be, yeah, right, yeah. to appreciate the fact that we're moving, uh-huh. that, that we can um, be alive, that we can function, you know. And, and if you're not, then you can start. You start by getting out and walking a little bit, walking to your mailbox and come back. And then each day you're going to go further and further. And as you do that, you start to appreciate the fact that you can move. Totally. And that actually leads us to the next one, which is um, – exercising and really, you know, finding that body movement is something that you really enjoy rather than doing it just for weight loss. Like, you know, you get up in the morning and say, okay, I got to go to the gym because I got to lose weight. Well, that's, that's not fun. Right, right. But you're saying get into the moment that you're moving, feel it, feel Feel that you're 
body is yeah. working. And and how do you feel after you do it? Yeah, I feel great. Like, do you yeah. feel great when you work yeah. work out and move and mm-hmm. yeah, get on a bike and sweat a little bit and and don't be afraid of the sweat. Yeah, I have to re- I admit that was one thing that really kind of got me excited early on about exercise was that. Sweat is my friend, and sweat I, is good. Sweat is good. You know, women sometimes are afraid of yeah, doing that, yeah. but you want to glow. But no, you you got to drip. drip. You got to drip. <laughs> you got to drip. You got to really work and get that's your neat. heart rate yeah. up. But you feel so good. So that's what you have to remember. Mm. Kind of like when you go out and you know you you're asked to go to a service project or right, something, and right. you say, I don't know if I really want to go do that. Yeah. And then you go do it, and you feel awesome. You feel great after. It's kind of like that with exercise. It's true, because right? you're, I guess you are exercising a, a, a gift, a ta- you're exercising service, you're exercising your spirit. S- service to your body, yeah. I think, in many That's ways. Cool. I love that idea. That's a great so, idea. Really- and, and just, fe- because otherwise, we always go for feelings anyway. What if you could actually find the feeling of – because, by the way, after the exercise, you feel good. That's when you feel it because that's yeah. when the chemicals, the endorphins yeah. have been – But about an hour yeah. and a half later, you might ache. You might ache, but at the same time, you might feel like, ooh, that was actually a good yeah, – I've moved muscles a, I've, that I hadn't better. used before. Mm-hmm. I am getting better. Yeah. I'm getting stronger. I climbed the stairs and I got yeah. farther than I normally do. Exactly. That's and you cool. can feel – Accomplished, That's like great. you've really, yeah, you've met, you've met a goal, and really the last one, the last piece of intuitive eating is to honor your health, hmm. and what this means basically is, you know, making, recognizing that you value, that you are of worth, that that your life matters, and as a result of that, I want to um, really take care of this gift, this body gift that I've been given. Yeah. And it is a responsibility and I recognize it as such. And so I'm going to honor that. That means I'm going to make um, good uh, food choices today. I'm going to choose my fruits and vegetables. I'm going to choose my lean proteins, my healthy fats. Um, But at the same time, I'm going to enjoy that food. I'm going to find the satisfaction. I'm going to try to get some body movement in today Mm -hmm. because that's honoring your health. And remember, there's no such thing as 100% perfect eating. Right, right. That's what I love about you, though, is that you can but enjoy it. Yes. But be as just be as healthy as you can be today. Right. So guess what we did after eating Thai food? Oh, I know. Ice cream, I bet. Yes. You had to. Well, <laughs> that, But you don't need ice cream every day. Family. Exactly. I don't eat it every day. But when you have your boys and your girls together, we yeah, go get ice we cream. we go get ice cream afterwards. And it That's was cool. so fun. We sat outside and we chatted this beautiful weather. It's mm. glorious. And we all, in fact, I split something with my husband. Why? We each enjoyed it because... <laughs> Because all we needed, I know that's it. honestly, just a the bit. portions were big. Yeah. So all we needed was just a few, yeah. a few bites. We each took, you know, five, six bites. It was fabulous. We enjoyed Perfect. it. And in fact, mine was over a cookie. It was ice cream over a cookie. Uh, and it tasted so good. Hold on. So and you're good. a dietitian? Yes. Because I practice intuitive that's right. eating. That's right. And then, and then you would know maybe you couldn't even finish it. Right. And then all of a sudden no, you're thinking- No, we did. But you did finish it, yeah. <laughs> In fact, we kind of licked the plate yeah. because it was so But good. even if you can't finish it, then your body, being an intuitive eater, you'd say, why do I need to finish it? Yeah. What about this yeah. makes me feel like I have to finish it? Right, particularly if you're satisfied and you feel good. Because mm. there is something called flavor fatigue. Oh, really? Isn't that funny? I Where, didn't know that. Like if you eat something, 
like the first few bites mean the most. Oh, yeah. And then as you eat more and more of the same thing, it kind of loses its interest, loses its savor. And And you don't want it anymore. And yet the non-intuitive eater would say, oh, I got to finish that because it's there. There's people in another country that don't have this. Or something like that. Isn't that that weird? Yeah, clean clean the plate club. So um, all of these, again, they can find them on your website, InsideKaren'sKitchen.com. But there's 10 of these. And- I guess if we just could practice one or two or three a day, yeah. over time, you will become a more intuitive eater. In fact, these things do take time. Yeah. They take time. Like So when you work with a therapist or someone um, like myself who teaches intuitive eating, it does take time. You have to practice. You're not going to have like, <clears throat> you know, that immediate weight no. loss. Right. You're going to have to explore what the role of food is in your life first. Yeah. You know, what is it I want this food to do for me? We're just constantly asking the why. Is it does it switch the other way where forever you're trying to be skinny and it's always about I've got to be skinny and skinny mm-hmm. and let's say you gain weight, can can you also just flip it to the other side where everything becomes about your weight and you're healthy now? Well, you know what I mean? Could it become negative in the positive? Well, if you for finding that that's your preoccupation. Yeah. How do you get over I that? I think that that's where this comes in. It's like, I, am I ever going to be a size six? Yeah. Is that realistic for me? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of our, like our bariatric patients who, you know, uh, present at a three plus or, you know, size 24 or whatever. And, and they find like getting down to a size 14, 12. And remember this, Matt. Yeah. The average size for women in America is a size 14. There, yeah. That's the average. Yeah, that's the average. She's 5'5", so five, five, yeah, and she weighs yeah. you know, 160, 170 pounds. That is very, very average. Now, that's above what would be considered like that BMI. We're throwing that BMI out right now. BMI. Yeah. We are. We're actually throwing it out. Good. In fact, even in practice, you're seeing less really? and less of it you being used yeah. as a marker because we're, we're trying to understand a little more about body composition, right. recognizing that BMI doesn't really... You know, we can still be healthy at a lot of different sizes. There's a strong, strong movement called health at every size. And cool. that is, you, you can kind of look that up too, health at every size. Or you can just go to Karen's website. You can and learn a lot. Inside Karen's Kitchen. Uh, Karen, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. She's the best. By the way, you can go there and just look at the pictures. I just go look at all of her pictures of all of her great meals. <laughs> Thank you. It's so good. Karen's the best. Have fun with your kids. Thank you. But not ice cream every day, Karen. Not every day. But tonight, for sure. Probably. Uh, We will continue the journey more straight ahead. Do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back. You know, just as it's important to be an intuitive eater, wouldn't it be powerful if we could uh, manage our relationships, our lives by uh, more of our intuitive abilities, more of our intuitive gifts? A lot of us think, yeah, I'm not very good at that relationship stuff, but I believe inside of each of us are some very basic gifts. Uh, Stephen Covey used to call a version of what I'm talking about um, endowments, that we all had these endowments or gifts. And if we would work the endowment or the gift, we could make it um, healthier, stronger, actually appreciate it and and make it bigger. And so I wanted to suggest that there are four things that every one of us possesses. 
And if we exercise these four lights, I call them, then uh, we we could probably turn our lives into to you know being run a little bit more by our conscience, by our intuition. One of the four lights is called self awareness. Self awareness is simply the idea that as a human being, you can become more and more aware of how you impact others, how you impact the world, how you impact yourself. You can become more self aware of your own thinking and uh, some of your thinking errors, some of your you know some of the ways that you approach life. Self-awareness. And one of the ways we do that is if uh, if we've had an episode, something happened to us in our lives, maybe we just got in an argument. And at the end of the argument, instead of just walking away and, you know, turning on a game and ignoring everything, what if we just slowly uh, went through some of these lights at, like self-awareness and asked ourselves a question like what what just happened here? Um, what part of what happened in this argument, what part of that problem was I? What, what am I feeling and, and what am I noticing? Why, why was I so reactive in that situation? And just use some of your own awareness to see if you can't figure out more about you. Self-awareness is a very basic, intuitive, I believe, gift or endowment that if you're as a human being, the more you become self-aware of your weaknesses, your strengths, your frailties, your idiosyncrasies, your tendencies, some of your thinking, the more aware you are, the better off you are uh, able to interact with others and get better results and actually probably feel more peace because you can then start aligning your actions to your values. So self-awareness is one of our lights. Another one is empathy. Empathy is really more about other awareness. Empathy is about me understanding the needs and the wants of others around me. And you can see that if you're a self-aware person, you are usually more other aware. If I can deeply understand my own needs, my own idiosyncrasies, my own likes, my own dislikes, then I might be able to understand a little bit better of yours. Empathy is where I could ask myself the question, What were the needs and the wants of my partner in that last argument we just had? What were they trying to convey to me? Another question I like to ask uh, clients is, what is it like to be married to me or to you? When you're sitting there, you know, berating, bemoaning this difficult partner of yours, what is it like to be married to you? Oh, it's a blessing. She is so lucky to have me. That is probably not very self-aware. The reality is it's probably hard to be married to you. You might be too demanding. You might be too, um, you might be too giving. You might you know, be too willing to, to not take a stand. But empathy is, I believe, an intuitive ability. And I think if we actually work on it a little bit more and gather the skill and focus on it, I can not only be self-aware, I can also be other-aware and more empathic. The third light that we can turn on is the light that I call vision. Vision is this idea of what I want to be and do and uh, and become for the future. And if I have a vision with my spouse and together we have a clear idea of what we want most together, then um, that should be a part of all of our decision-making. So after my fight with or an argument with my spouse – I sit down and I ask the questions. What part of the problem am I? That's self-awareness. Empathy, what are the needs and wants of my partner in that discussion? And the vision question would be, what do we most want together? 
What what are we trying to do as a couple here? And what do we really, in our highest values, in our highest sense of self, what do we want to create together? And then that helps us identify kind of a connection of the ideal. What does that ideal world together look like? And then the last question we ask is the intuitive question, I believe, that we call the conscience. The conscience is our ability to make a decision based on our values, on our principles, on the things we hold most dear. And the conscience question is, what is the most important thing I can do today to positively impact this relationship? What's the most important thing I can do today to be the kind of person I want to be, to live that vision that we want together, to meet my partner's needs. And then I let my conscience be my guide. I let my conscience tell me what I should do right now after this argument to go make it better. And if my conscience tells me to get up and go down and apologize, then I just need to see if I have the character to do that. But my conscience will always lead me to be more aligned to my value system. The only question is, am I going to turn that light on? It's not enough to just be aware of our problems. It's not enough to just be uh, empathic to others. It's not enough to just know what you want in a vision of life. At some point, you have to also let your values do the teaching, right? Let your values be the guide. And if your conscience tells you to do something, then do you have the character to step up? Four basic lights. Self-awareness, empathy, vision, and conscience. They're all, I think, inside of each of us. We just have to exercise them. And a lot of times we don't um, because it's it's just too easy to to blame our partner, right, and to not care and not be empathic and to not see our big-term, long-term vision while we're in the middle of a short-term battle. And we don't necessarily always want to engage our conscience because – I think we're afraid we'll feel guilty because of it. So a little advice, right? I can't I can't make it any more simple than that, but I know I struggle with these lights, but I also know that anytime I have a problem when I'm coaching somebody, those are four very basic questions. What part of the problem of the or solution are you? What are the needs and wants of those around you? What do we want most together? And what's the most important thing you can do right now? And then I found if I just go do that one thing, man, I feel better. I feel better, and the relationship grows, and it improves. Makes sense? Pretty basic stuff. The lights, the four lights, I call those, and uh, I really believe they're the road to a healthier, healthier, and more kind of uh, integrated, healthy, whole life. So we'll continue the journey, folks. Uh, Up next, we'll be talking about some more tools to fix broken or breaking relationships. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We all have uh, relationship issues with somebody, you know, sometimes we just can't communicate like we need to, apologizing isn't there, it's just hard. And so wouldn't it be great if you had a a really impressive toolkit or toolbox that could help you handle the relationships in your life? Well, uh, a while ago, we interviewed Alan C. Fox, who's the author of the book People Tools, 54 Strategies for Building Relationships, Creating Joy, and Embracing Prosperity. And we wanted to revisit some of that interview with you today. Uh, I I, I began the interview asking um, about how, you know, sometimes we expect people to be able to read our minds. That's for sure. And we expect it. 
Uh, yeah. People tools for love and relationships. I have a chapter on that. And uh, you, you, mind reading. If you loved me, I wouldn't have to ask. <laughs> and don't we all tend to believe that? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I come home and say, "Well, why did you make this for dinner?" You know, that's what I wanted. Well, how in the world is, <laughs> is anybody going to go anything unless I tell them? Yeah. And you know, and, and someone gets angry at me for not reading their mind. I tell them, hey, you know, I turned in my license. I'm I'm really no good at mind reading. So, and and you know, there's another tool that goes with that, Matt, which is it's okay to ask. You know, my father got so angry when you asked him for something he right. wanted to say no to that he got really angry. And I learned just don't ask, don't yeah. ask. Well, it's okay to ask, and it's also okay to say no. You don't have to get angry about it. Well, yeah. It, it, how many of us go through life never asking? You know, for the same reason. You know, you may have learned. You may get your hand slapped a lot when you're a kid, so you're like, I'm just not going to ask. But if you never ask, you never – I guess you'd never get married. <laughs> if you never ask, you'd never get what you want. That's for sure. Absolutely. And then there's that weird moment though, isn't there, that when you have to ask and you extend yourself and you're vulnerable and then they shut you down, it almost seems like you're much more inclined to just never bring it up again. Well, that's one way. Not asking is one way to avoid rejection. Yeah. But as they say, uh, if you ask a hundred times and you get five yeses, that's better than not asking at all and never getting one yes. Mm-hmm. It's it, that's I think what's so strange about relationships is because it's so there's so many different individual preferences that we have, personal preferences that might get in the way. How, how do I negotiate your preferences versus mine? How do we how do we get through that so we don't end up fighting just about preference? Well, I, I think one thing you have to do is appeal to their self-interest. In other words, if, if, if I want a friend or my wife to do something and, and they have a problem with it, um, you know, suppose I want to go to uh, an opera. My wife doesn't want to go to the opera. I say, okay, what, what, what do I have to do to get you to go to the opera? And she might say, well, if you go to this wedding with me of yeah. a friend, then I'll go to the opera. So appeal to, to what they want. You know what you want, but yeah. you have to get cooperation for somebody else. Well, that's that's probably the real estate guy in you. <laughs> I mean, right? You got to you got to first find out what someone wants in order to make a sell. Absolutely, Matt. That's 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 a good pickup. And in real estate, I always want to find out what the other side wants. What's most important? Is it is it price? Is it quick action? Location? Yeah. Location. Whatever they want that's most important. That's what I want to give them. Yeah, and if you assume that, you're dead, aren't you? Because then I'm just going to keep trying to push price when price may not be your trigger. Exactly right. Absolutely. Huh. And it's funny. You wouldn't always think that that's the same in your marriage, but it really is. I mean, if your wife really wants to get to this wedding, she might sit through an opera just to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's a matter of, it's not that your partner is going to give you everything you want. It's, it's a matter of negotiation, and you do some things for them and some things for yourself. Hmm. And uh, uh, unfortunately, they say you know a compromise. Uh, you know, it's a good compromise if uh, if both people are slightly dissatisfied. Yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, it, it, that's that's what I used to always do as a mediator. Is I would just you know they'd always offer this brilliant solution that's so one sided, and I'd always ask, okay, so if we just turn the deal. You'd like that? Well, yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's got to be an equal deal on both sides. And uh, yeah, and man, being a mediator, I think it's excellent, excellent training for uh, for real life. Because as a mediator, 
you see the issues objectively, and the parties can't do that themselves. Yeah. Man, when I was a mediator, one of the biggest issues that seemed to just blur all common thought was money, finances, any issue about money. Are there any specific tools we should use when we're talking about money with the people we care about or with the people in our lives? Absolutely. And one of my chapters in People Tools for Love and Relationship is let's talk about money. In most families, they don't talk about money. You know, my second wife said to me one day, my parents need financial help. I said, well, how do you know? She said, well, it's just a feeling. I said, well, what does your dad earn? She said, I don't know. Well, they have problems making their mortgage payment? I, I don't know. Why do you think they, just a feeling, you talk to them. So I talked to them, and no, they were perfectly okay. And if you're uncomfortable talking about something, how can you solve problems? Yeah. I mean, a woman I knew got married, and two years later, she and her husband went to buy a house. His credit was horrible. They couldn't qualify for the loan. She didn't know that. They never talked about money. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? Absolutely. Like, so we're not even going to talk about it? I mean, that's then I guess, yeah, then you're just left guessing. Well, I, I had a funny one. <clears throat> my first wife, when I was driving, she would start rubbing the back of my neck, which I really liked. And I had this idea that if I moved my head, she'd stop. <laughs> So I drove just using my eyes, and you know I should have said to her, "Honey, I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna move my head to drive properly, but but keep on doing it." Yeah, keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Communicate, huh? You bet. Well, you're lucky you're not dead. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> that would have totally ended the neck rub <laughs> if you get in a car accident. Um, well, as we wrap this up, what would you say is the one thing? You know, I always like to end with kind of the one thing that makes the biggest difference. What is the one thing our, our audience can take away today and start using to, to have a better life with people? I think the one thing you can use <clears throat> is what you hear every time you, you take a flight on a commercial airliner, and that is put on your own oxygen mask first. In other words, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to get enough emotional satisfaction yourself to be of any use in a relationship. You know, some people uh, just take care of the other and take care of the other and take care of the other, and they, they've just got nothing left in the tank. Yeah. So be sure to take care of yourself. Put on your own oxygen mask first. Great advice from Alan C. Fox, author of the book People Tools, 54 Strategies for Building Relationships, Creating Joy, and Embracing Prosperity. And that's the show for us, folks. That's it for the week. Up next, uh, we turn the microphone over to Jeff Simpson and the um, screen cleaning show uh, where he's going to walk you through how to have a healthier, happier media experience with you and your family. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. We are here every Friday here on BYU Radio to talk about movies, TV, really thing entertainment-centered. And we have another fantastic show here for you today. Don't we always? We always do, but today's in a way special because, Cole, you're kind of winding down in your tenure here at BYU Radio as you're getting ready to graduate. And I asked you if, if you could do any topic that you want to do on the show, what would it be? And you had the idea of to talk about our five favorite movies. To, to be more than just favorite, really the movies that helped 
shape and refine our movie-going tastes and preferences, right? To give the listeners kind of an idea behind the curtain of. Where we're coming from as movie, we talk about movies every single week on this show, right? And I think it's fair to let people understand what the movies were that shaped the kind of movies we like now. I'm super excited about this because I feel like we're going to get to know you a little better. You're going to get to know me a little better as well because there's going to be a storytelling element to this show as well. Because really, there, the movies that that are impactful for all of us there's there's always a story behind that right why they were so important to us and so we're each going to have five different categories although i'm sure the genres are going to be similar to each other uh but i'm going to start with the movie that got into my head how's that for a title i'm ready so this is a film what i say by it got into my head it uh got into my Conscious and subconscious mind. Okay. Dug itself deep. Right. So as is the case with so many films from our ch- our childhoods, uh, images have a very lasting effect. And really they still do, but especially when you're a child and when you're you, – there are times when you don't feel very safe. And one of those times came when I – grew up watching The Wizard of Oz. Now, I should say that I wouldn't I wouldn't list this as one of my all-time favorites, but it has had one of the the most lasting impacts of any of the films I've ever seen. And let me explain. There's a scene in the film The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy has been captured by the Wicked Witch of the West. And the Wicked Witch of the West decides to taunt Dorothy by pretending to be her Aunt M, and you see Aunt M in this crystal ball, and as Dorothy is crying and calling out to calling out to Aunt M, the image of Aunt M starts to dissolve, and this greenish hue appears, and all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West taunting her, Aunt M, Aunt M. I'll give you an AM. And then she starts laughing or cackling. And there's a moment where she turns her face and stares directly at the camera. The image of the Wicked Witch of the West looking at me, directly at me, and laughing, that evil laugh, was burned into my conscious and subconscious mind. From that moment on, For the rest of my childhood, I had a recurring dream that involved the Wicked Witch of the West. And this must say something about my fear of being left out or being left behind, because I had a dream, and it always started out with with my mother and me walking home. And we we go into our cul-de-sac, or we go into uh, our—we turn to go into our cul-de-sac, and on the corner house— I remember, and I'm walking hand in hand with my mom, I remember the Wicked Witch of the West come running out of this house, walking up to me, grabbing me by the arm, and pulling me up on her lawn into her house, and I remember screaming for my mom, 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 help me, save me! And my mom completely does not acknowledge me, ignores me, and just keeps walking home as the Wicked Witch is pulling me into her house. 
terrifying, right? Absolutely. I, would, I was always afraid that the Wicked Witch was in my parents' uh, closet. And so this movie, as you can imagine, had a lasting impact on me. I, would, I could never look at that scene again when she was on the screen. Um, it also had a, a very lasting impact on my childhood in the form of performance. And what I mean by that is I remember my older siblings putting up a black curtain or a black uh, sheet and me coming out dressed uh, in a white shirt and tie about yay big, only a couple inches tall, and they had drawn a fake mustache on my uh, on my upper lip and my hair was all slicked back and gelled and they had me sing If I Were the King of the Forest in the operatic style, I should add. Well, uh, of course they would. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the what they don't what you don't really see on the film though is me immediately running off screen and crying and them wanting me to come back and do another take and I said, "No, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it." And I tried really hard to find video of this so we could have it on the show. And you know, if I find it later on, maybe we can maybe we can uh, tweet play it, it out or something. Right, yeah. right. Um, but yes, I. So my family would always have me sing if I were the king of the forest, opera style. And it's the rolling R's that always gets me. The forest. <laughs> yeah, but I think the part that I didn't appreciate uh, is my siblings wanted me to end the song by singing, and I am a total ding. So it made no sense. I'm not sure why they did it. But the interesting well, they were kids, right? right. The interesting thing about this film, when you revisit it as an adult after having not seen it for years and years and years, because you blocked it and suppressed it in your memories, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. You realize, holy cow, this movie is like 80 years old and it still holds up. Uh-huh. It is still such a great Film. The music holds up. The acting is amazing. You have all these actors that back then when you were an actor, if you wanted to have a career, you couldn't just act. You had to sing. You had to dance. You had to be able to do it all, right? And this is back in the old studio system. So you had people that were vaudeville actors that were all of a sudden in these movies. Dressed up in tin makeup and lion costumes. My favorite characters from the movie are the lion and the wizard. The lion makes sense, right? Because I mimicked him singing If I Were the King of the Forest. But the wizard in particular, because he is the best part. He gets to play like half a dozen different characters, each one different from the last. It's still amazing. It still holds up. The acting is so much fun. And uh, now I love it for completely different reasons. There you go. The movie that got into my head. The Wizard of Oz, when I pitched this to you and said we should give the viewers a peek behind the curtain at who Ah. we are as our movie tastes have evolved, I didn't know you were going to take it literally (laughs) with the movie that gave us the peek behind the curtain at The Wizard. Right. That's awesome. So I'll kind of lighten things up. I could go scary. I will go scary later on. Of course. Scary is a big part of the movies that I love. But I'm going to start off with the movies that made me laugh. Hmm. So I, I love that you started off with going back way back because it's hard for me to to remember a time where I wasn't just intimately familiar with the movie Clue, for example. It's one of my honorable right. mentions. Yeah. I had no idea what the plot was, but I've watched it from such a young age that I knew that I just laughed the whole way through. 
As I got older, I started getting into movies like The Emperor's New Groove, which broke the fourth wall in a wonderful way. Uh, Kung Fu Panda being at the drive-in movie theater. I don't think I've ever laughed so much at a movie (laughs) in my entire life. And we will bring up some TV shows later on as well. And my favorite funny TV show is Community. Oh, yeah. All these movies and TV shows make me laugh in different ways, but the funny movie that I will always hold up as my favorite and the most personal to me is 1963's It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. You got the correct number of mads in there, by the way. That it's you very should important. be commended for that. <laughs> Absolutely. And so this this is another one of those movies that I remember I saw for the first time when I was way too young to understand anything about plot. I just knew that the pure physical comedy could get me rolling on the floor laughing. And I continued watching it as I grow older and as I begin to understand what was going on and began to understand the undertaking of getting all of these different actors together and and starting to slowly recognize actors from different things. You know, as a small child, I watched TV Land and I saw Andy Griffith. And then the next time I watched It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, I saw Don Knotts. And I thought that was the (laughs) coolest thing. And then I started recognizing more and more of these characters that they slammed into this absolutely hilarious romp of a movie. Yeah. Did you see, did you ever see Rat Race? I did. I know it's kind of the inferior of the uh two, but it's just very similar in, you know, that didn't have as many cameos. But uh, that is interesting. But for that, a new era, it kind of was trying the yeah. same thing. <laughs> you enjoyed it even without knowing who all who all these cameos were. Oh yeah, and that's great. And that's part of the joy of the movie, right? Now that I go back and I recognize almost everyone that's in it, it's that's part of the joy that comes with it is being able to say, "Oh, that's so and so from such and such," you know. Oh, Mickey Rooney is in this. Oh, <laughs> Spencer Tracy is doing like, but. When you're a little kid, it's a funny enough movie yeah. that it can just keep – it kept me enthralled the whole time. Yeah, and really for the most part, it's the, – the comedy is universal because if you were to put it in a different language or if you were to see it in English and you spoke a different language, it would still be funny. Jonathan Winters, the large truck driver biking around <laughs> on a little girl bike is – That is a funny image. Comedy. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to – I'm going to kind of uh, – I'm going to kind of continue on with that theme that you've got going on there. This is the show that changed the course of my life. Ooh. Now, there should be an asterisk next to that because not only am I doing uh, mentioning a TV and a movie or a TV show and a movie, but the movie is actually a series of movies and it's actually the movies of Jim Carrey, particularly uh, from the 90s. Boy. Now, these aren't the most critically acclaimed movies, not by a long shot. Um, And, you know, some of them may not hold up as well as they used to. But 1994 was a fantastic year for Jim Carrey. He came out with the films Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber. Wow. The Mask, when I was at, when I was a young boy, so this would have, I would have been 11 years old. It was the greatest thing I could ever see on the movie screen because you have this character who is playing a myriad of characters just switching back and forth from one to the other who's just a living cartoon on the screen in this live-action film. And harkens back to all the cartoons that we loved. The Mask came very close to making my honorable mentions. Yeah, and I remember getting the soundtrack, memorizing the entire thing like I – I didn't know all of the words because back when you're that age, 
you kind of just you, all you can do is mimic, so you don't know what they're exactly saying. So you just try to say as close to what they're saying as possible. And I knew the entire Cuban Pete routine and would perform it in my bedroom all the time. My parents were always begging me to perform it for their friends. Would never go that far and do that. But uh, this is a film that really was important to me as a kid. And of those three films, Dumb and Dumber, I think, is the one that has held up the best and is still one of my favorite all-time funny movies. And for a movie that is called Dumb and Dumber and is a film about dumb humor, it's actually a very smart film. And, you know, those this like I said, this was a great year for him, but he went on to do some other great films like uh, The Truman Show, which, which was a little bit of a departure for him as far as his standard fare. He did uh, Liar, Liar. He did another Ace Ventura film. I really miss the films of Jim Carrey from the 90s, and his films will never be the same. But I can always go back and revisit these. And the TV show that changed the course of my life was The Simpsons, obviously. So the number one question I would get growing up when they heard that my last name was Simpson was, oh, are you related to Homer? Is Homer your dad? (laughs) Interesting tidbit, though. My grandmother's name is Marjorie. So there is that. So you are related to Marge Simpson. And if it wasn't, is your dad Homer? It was, are you related to O.J.? Yeah, I'm related to O.J. Simpson. <laughs> so I kind of missed that. The 90s that were a nice time. <laughs> because this this ended after my uh, junior high year. But then when I lived in Russia for two years, when people heard my name was Simpson, they their eyes lit up and they would say, oh, Gomer Simpson. Gomer. It's actually Gomer Simpson in Russia. But the reason I mention The Simpsons and the the movies of Jim Carrey as the the shows that changed the course of my life, Cole, you know this about me. I do voiceovers for a living, Mm -hmm. and I often do all sorts of different characters. In high school, I was the morning announcements guy, and I did all these different characters. I am convinced that had, had it not been for The Simpsons, especially The Simpsons, I would not have the career that I currently have. And that's saying a lot because I would mimic all of these different characters. I would see just which of these Simpsons characters I could mimic, mimic. and I started comprise, or, uh, compiling a list of all these different characters, and I used a lot of them on the morning announcements. So if it wasn't for Jim Carrey and The Simpsons, I wouldn't be where I am today. That's interesting. Yeah. I love that. And they had a deeper meaning than just being the dumb comedies that they were. I mean, Absolutely. you can turn your brain off if you watch The Simpsons for a couple <laughs> hours, but that it actually impacted you. But it's also very smart humor. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so I will I will take on that inspiration for you that has led you to the career that you have and talk about some of the heroes within movies that have inspired me to be better. Hmm. Heroes and... And heroic figures are a large part of me. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about Rocky and the, oh, yeah. that Pennsylvania spirit that he brings to the underdog role. And Star Wars was another movie that I watched over all, – all three of them at the time. I watched over and over and over again when I was so young that I didn't understand what was going on. But I knew that Luke had overcome and had changed in his course and his hero's journey. 
Hercules was the Disney movie that I aspired. And, and the way it kind of takes on a sports movie format sure, in a yeah. Disney movie combined with a superhero, uh, combined with a Greek god going from zero to hero. And then I also watched the television show Guts, which was a reality <laughs> Mike kind O'Malley. of – Yeah, it's a reality kind of a game show. But I aspired to be those 11 or 12-year-old kids that got to jump around on – you know, bungee cords and slam dunk basketballs. But no heroes really embodied what I wanted to be. And no heroes inspired me quite the way that comic book heroes always have. Uh-huh. My dad was a really big comic book collector back in the 60s when he was a child. And the thing that he passed on to me and, and the thing that we could always come together over were comic book heroes. So in 2001, when Cartoon Network was debuting a brand new television show called Justice League with a three-part opening pilot cinematic kind of story to bring together our seven great heroes, we sat down and watched that together. And I will never forget where I was sitting in my living room and how I felt seeing Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and The Flash and Hawkgirl and John Jones come together to save the world for the first time. And those were my heroes. Wow. The Justice League, and they still are. The Justice League television show absolutely holds up. And even more so, the two seasons of Justice League Unlimited that it took on when it invited all the heroes from the entire DC universe to the party. Uh, The way that it handles story structure, the way that it gave specific stories to every single hero and let them be them. The best episode is when Flash has his own little personal episode with his villains, and he's in Central City, which is his city, with Batman and the Guardian, who are two kind of very stoic, boring, for lack of a better word, kind of heroes. And Mm -hmm. they see his interaction where he walks into just a dive bar and he pats the trickster on the back and just says, hey, do you know where these other guys are at? Are you off your meds again? And he just has such a rapport (laughs) with his super villains that embodied who the Flash was. Wally West is just a nice guy that happened to get superpowers and, and was out helping people. One person at a time, one villain even at a time. And I I just looked up to that so much. And every single one of those heroes offered something different. Um, comic book heroes, especially those in the Justice League cartoon, were those that I looked up to. Well, Cole, this is this is giving us some great detail and insight into who is Cole Wissinger. And I really made myself vulnerable myself when I shared that pic of The Wizard of Oz. And when we return, we're actually going to be talking about fear and the movies and the role it had in our movie-going experience growing up and still today. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. We're giving you a look behind the curtain today as Cole and I share some of our favorite films, the films that really shaped and refined our movie tastes. And uh, Cole, you mentioned something interesting in the last block, uh, which is you remembered where you were when you watched Justice League for the first time. And that's certainly true of all the Jim Carrey movies that I talked about. I can remember what theater I saw them and... uh, who I saw it with, and in some cases, what I was even eating at that movie. These movies and TV shows for us 
tie themselves to very vivid memories. They're important parts of who we are. And we're sharing them with you. And I shared one of my fears in the last block, and you're going to share one coming up here in just a minute. And fear is a feeling, and you're also going to be talking about a film that made you feel, Cole. Yes, feelings can be scary, feelings can be happy, feelings can be inspirational, but sometimes feelings can just all overwhelm you at the same time. And so I'm going to talk about the movies that just, they got to me on that emotional man-cry-y kind of way. (laughs) But before I was a man crying at at the movie that's going to be at the top of my list, I was a three-year-old crying at Free Willy, or I was a five-year-old crying when the Pokemon had to to go up against each other in Pokemon the first movie. (laughs) Even when I got to be, you know, seven or eight, and to see one of my heroes, the Iron Giant, embodying Superman, and flying off to save the city with his Superman. And I cry every time when I go back and watch that, or even when I got a little older and was an angsty teenager, and seeing click with adam sandler should be just a Hmm. dumb funny movie but seeing him run out into the rain trying to salvage his family relations at the very end made me cry so were you super excited when the iron giant showed up in ready player one absolutely Uh, he is (laughs) no matter how they use him it was fantastic to see him on the big screen but no movie none of those compare to the way that i cried at the end of toy story three oh yeah So, and I've shared before, and I'll share it once more, that I am Andy's age. When I was a five-year-old, I had all the green army men, and I had a Woody, and I had a Buzz, and I had an RC car, and I had a little piggy bank, and I had an Etch-A-Sketch, and I had Andy's room, and I had a toy chest that I would put them all in when I was ready for bed. And then a couple years later, Toy Story 2 came out, and it did what no Disney movie was doing at the time, and it made a good sequel. This was the era (laughs) of very bad direct-to-video Disney sequels, and so to go to a theater and see the toys back in action in a good story, even as a seven-year-old, I recognized this was something to pay attention to. And Toy Story 2 originally was supposed to be a uh, direct-to-DVD sequel. Mm -hmm. But they realized they had something there. You know, Cole, I I know uh, which Pixar films make me cry. Toy Story 3, mm-hmm. um, Up, mm-hmm. most recently Coco, and, and even sometimes Inside Out. Oh, yeah. When, when uh, the, the scene with Bing Bong, I don't want to give it away, and then the scene at the end of the film, I don't want to give that away either. Uh, I think those are the four that make me cry. I don't think I'm leaving any out. Pixar-wise, it was just it was just the 15 years attached to all of those Toy Story films. Because when Toy Story 3 came out in 2010, I was also graduating high school. And it was the summer before I left all of my toys and went off to college like Andy was doing. And to just have all of that background. And that's what we're talking about today is our personal stories behind sure. these movies. Toy Story 3, I don't imagine – I mean it's not just there to make you cry. It brings all of the emotions and all the baggage that I have as a person and as a moviegoer to the screen at the same time. And everything put together with the audio and the visual and the beautiful story was what made it so emotional for me. I'm glad you brought up movies that make you feel and in particular movies that make you cry because I I mentioned the Jim Carrey movies in in the last block and I uh I will admit that I've even gotten choked up at the end of the film Liar Liar because he's 
It's he's, the weird comedies that catch you off guard, Jeff. I'm he's, warning you. He's doing this outrageous thing in order to um, save his relationship with his son that takes place at the LAX airport. And at the end of the film, there's a scene where he's promising his son that he'll never hurt him again. And it really gets to you. Really gets to you. Anyway, I'm going to share a movie pick that really made me only feel one thing, and that's joy and laughter. Because the the category of this next film is Shirley, the movie that takes itself seriously. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> and I know that's a horrible <laughs> lead-in to this film, and it's probably a dead giveaway, and it should be, for the film Airplane. Exclamation mark. That is correct, yes. Um and I mentioned that it takes itself seriously, and that, that's very important because, to me, comedy is a serious thing. And that's not to say that I don't like slapstick or wacky characters that are just off the walls, because there is something to be said about commitment. And if somebody can commit 100%, even if it's a wacky, obvious character, it's funny, right? This movie is different in that they wanted to make a spoof of... Some of those old disaster films. But the reason I mentioned that it takes itself seriously is because they went out of their way to hire established, dramatic actors to play these ridiculous characters saying these ridiculous things. And I think that that is important not only because it's funny to see these dramatic actors in these ridiculous roles, but because there's something... There's something about saying, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley, with a deadpan, straight face that makes it, that elevates the comedy to the next level. Because imagine somebody like Jim Carrey saying, saying that with like a silly voice or doing it in a wacky, wacky way. Wacky over at the top. It wouldn't fit. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't fit. In a spoof, you've got to take your comedy very seriously. And so they get it right. I don't really have, you know, an insightful story for this film, but no other film that I've seen can make me laugh from beginning to end like Airplane, which is still true to this day. It was a very important film for me growing up, and it still is. I still haven't quite seen anything like it, with the exception of maybe uh, the first Naked Gun movie. But again... Same filmmakers doing Naked Gun as did uh, Airplane. And your same star. So I'll take your serious angle and up the ante on it because this next grouping is the films that scared me. I love horror movies nowadays, which is no secret. We know that. That I've ever talked to movies about. But now I want to tell you why and where this kind of comes from. Because when I was four years old... And my mom says I was five and my dad says I was three. But we were watching Turner Classic Movies and they were getting ready to go to bed. We finished whatever movie we were watching. And the next one was going to be The Mummy, 1932 with Boris Karloff. Whoa. And I said, hey, that looks fun. Can I watch it? And they said, yeah, sure. And they went to bed thinking that I would be upstairs crying and terrified and wouldn't be able to go to sleep. But they fell asleep, and then an hour and a half later, they woke up and came downstairs to see where I was at, and I was glued six inches 
in front of that television <laughs> to the movie monster and the, the just gazing deep eyes that Boris Karloff brought the mummy. These monster movies stayed with me. I remember watching episodes of Dark Shadows, which was an old goofy monster mm-hmm. soap opera yeah. growing up. But horror didn't have to be monsters. It could be quiet and menacing, like in Wait Until Dark, or well-acted and surprising, like at the end of Psycho. Even The Twilight Zone, which still is one of my favorite television shows, examining all the different things in our daily life that could horrify you. Anywhere from a talking Tina doll to a mission to Mars. But no movie or TV show quite taught me what horror really could be, like the TV miniseries movie hybridish that was It. Oh, with boy. Tim Curry. Mm-hmm. Tim that, Curry. That was the moment where I realized just what movies could do to make you feel. And and if when I try to describe why I like horror movies, this is where I have to go to because it's hard for me to describe. I don't I don't really get the adrenaline rush of being scared. That's not where it comes from. But it's it's the monsters themselves that so intrigue me. And no movie monster has done it quite like Tim Curry did with with Pennywise the Clown in the It movie. Tim Curry is just creepy in general. He's, I mean, he's usually the bad guy, but uh, so you take Tim Tim Curry and put him in a clown costume and you've really doubled the frights there. Mm Mm-hmm. This this was the movie that I tie my love of horror to. It's interesting that you talked about movies that scare you because uh, it's actually not the category I'm going to do next. The next category for me is the show that spoiled me. But it is a scary movie in this category, and you already mentioned it. It's a little film called Psycho, one of my favorite movies of all time. Yep. My favorite scary movie, um, followed very closely by the film Jaws. Jaws especially was another film that played a huge part in my nightmares. The recurring nightmarish dreams I, I used to have, some of which I still have to this day, Wicked Witch, uh, my teeth falling out, falling down or being in an elevator that's not functioning properly, let's just say, and Jaws. And I figured out pretty quickly that if I watched this film at night, I would have a nightmare that night. If I watched it during the day, I'd be okay. This is actually not my pick for shows that spoiled me, though. It's actually Psycho, because Psycho is a film that, with its practical effects, does not hold up very well. And that's no secret. But that's not why you watch this movie, because the real scares in this movie come from the dialogue. They... Alfred Hitchcock was a master of suspense. In fact, that was kind of the moniker, That was his thing. Yeah, the master of suspense, right? So the reason this movie spoiled me for other scary movies is because it really really made it difficult for other films to be original and scary without ripping off some of the things that Alfred Hitchcock did in this movie. A lot of films today rely so heavily on jump scares, and that's not to say you can't have a good jump scare, but like any good scary movie, all of the scares come from the dialogue, not the jump scares, not the gore. I'm not a huge fan of gore. The TV show that spoiled me on other TV shows is a a show I know you're not crazy about, Cole, but it's Breaking Bad. This idea of 
Prestige TV, where you take a little extra time in between seasons to write it, to make sure that you get it right. I remember I was a huge fan of the show uh, Burn Notice on USA, and it's still a fun show that really covers all the demographics that you want to cover in order to have a good show. Um, But I started watching Breaking Bad, finished it, then I went back and tried to pick up where I left off with Burn Notice. I couldn't do it. It was too cheesy. It it wasn't as violent as Breaking Bad, which is a good thing, I guess. But another thing about Breaking Bad is it wasn't just one violent show from from show to show, from episode to episode. Something violent would happen maybe once every five or six episodes, and then everything else was just the dramatic stakes, you know? Again, so much of the, the suspense came from the dialogue. So, yeah, it's hard to enjoy other TV shows. Thanks, Breaking Bad. And it's hard to enjoy other scary movies. Thanks a lot, Psycho. But at least I've got those to go back and revisit from time to time. And they are fantastic. Absolutely. When we return, we're going to be winding down in our lists of films that have had a significant impact on our lives. The films and TV shows that have shaped and refined our movie and TV show tastes. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning. Screen cleaning, you are getting a very vulnerable and honest look at the films that mean so much to Cole and me, and also the TV shows. Films that have made us laugh, that have made us cry, that have horrified us, that have stayed with us in our dreams, and they've really stayed with us over all these years, and they probably will for the rest of our lives until we come up with a new one. Um, and Cole, I, I, I. I've got to mention some of my honorable mentions because it was so difficult to pare this list down. And I, did I guess mention... I'll let you since I've okay. been doing so many of them <laughs> as we go. I did mention, too, at the beginning that some of these films aren't necessarily my favorite films of all time, but they've had an impact on me in one way or another. And some of my more favorite recent films I've mentioned, I mentioned Coco already. Another film that I definitely want to mention that it it doesn't get old to me. I could watch it again and again and again, and I find something new to love about it each time, is the film Lars and the Real Girl. Oh, yeah. And it's a film that really has changed over time. Um, when I first saw it, I kind of saw it as a romantic comedy. And I think part of the reason for that is because when I saw it, I was single, and so I was just you know, a sucker for those romantic movies because I was dreaming. I was pining for that romance. I wanted to have a significant other. Right. But now that I'm married, I've got kids and I watch it again. It's really just a drama. It's a family drama. And it's it's so heartwarming. This film about this this man who has a difficult time connecting with people who is clear. He's clearly got some emotional issues that he's been harboring since he was a kid when his when their parents died and uh he orders this it's a mannequin we'll say and it, the film never goes where you think it's going to go 
And it's just a, a sweet, tender story about this community of people who love this man who's quirky. They come together and they just shower him with love. And that's really, in the end, that is what cures him of some of these emo- of some of this emotional baggage that he's been holding on to all these years. Really sweet, tender story starring Ryan Gosling. One it's a that, coming together story. Exactly. It is beautiful. Right. Uh, I've got to mention probably my favorite romantic comedy of all time, Defending Your Life, starring Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. It's probably not one that a ton of people remember and, you know, but it's – I think it's Albert Brooks's best movie and one that we quoted a lot growing up. The thing I love about this film is that it really makes you think about the afterlife because you have this man who dies at the very beginning of the film and goes to this place called Judgment City. It's kind of a – it's a place where you're at before you move on. They never even establish what moving on means. But uh, you can eat all that you want. You don't grow – you don't gain any weight. And you're basically on – your life is on trial. So depending on how the trial ends up, you can either go back to Earth, and so basically it has this idea of reincarnation, or you can move on. Again, not establishing what that is, whether it's heaven. Um, But some of the ideas in this film are kind of close to what I imagine the afterlife would be like. So when he's in this trial, he gets to see scenes from his life. And I I believe that you're going to have a, a perfect knowledge of of things whether that whether that is comes in the form of like watching it on a TV screen or it's just instantly downloaded to your mind I don't know but it has some interesting ideas that that slightly coincide with some of the ideas that I have plus it's just a really funny romantic comedy so defending your life the great escape I've always said is probably my favorite movie of all time I don't know if it still is my only favorite movie of all time but this is the film that really shaped my appreciation for old movies. My dad showed me pretty much everything under the sun that was appropriate for a kid my age to see. So that included old movies. And this was just like the epitome of cool in the form of Steve McQueen riding his motorcycle over these barbed wire fences trying to escape from the Nazis and I just – it really also established, established my love for movies where you get to see all these characters. You get to fall in love with all these characters, and then they kind of branch off and you see what happens to each one of those. Uh, I would also mention The Fugitive as kind of the epitome of suspense or of like a police suspense movie. It doesn't get any better than Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones in the movie The Fugitive – This is a movie that we will stop everything and watch it when it shows up on TV. Even though we own it on DVD, we'll sit there and watch it with commercials. It's that good. And then another film that was the first Pixar film I remember crying through was Up. And it also came out the same year that I got married. So it had a very special place in my heart. Just that little five-minute vignette at the beginning of the film where you see you, you you fall in love with these characters And you get to see their entire life within five minutes. I don't know of any other film that can establish characters in such a short amount of time and uh, make your heart swell and then break all within those first five minutes. It's amazing. So those were your honorable mentions. Yes. Thank you. And to recap for me, so far we've had 
movies that make me laugh, like it's a Mad 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 yes. world. Movies that made me feel, made me cry, like Toy Story 3. Mm-hmm. Movies that inspired me with the heroes of my childhood, like Justice League, the TV show. Um, and then movies that made me scared, like It. But for my last category, I got movies that make me think and movies that show me that none of those categories are quite as simple as I thought they were, that they can complicate things. The first TV show to really show me that TV could be more than just tune in every week and and see what happened to our heroes or what monster they're going up against now was Lost. This is probably the most embarrassing honorable mention of my list because going back, it's, it's really only got two good seasons cumulatively over the course Which ones? Because I kind of want to go back and watch them. Season one is fantastic. First half of season two is good. There's parts of season four with time travel that I'm partial to, and then the finale is, hmm. I think, is a satisfying finale. Okay. Um, but Lost made made me think at the time when I was watching it and, and showed me that TV could be more complicated than what it had been leading up to that point in my life. I, I also do love time travel. Movies like Back to the Future were some heroic kind of movies that I saw, but time travel and science fiction can be more complicated like in the movie Primer where they really dive into mm. the nitty gritty of what it means to travel through time or even Planet of the Apes where the whole um, right. spoiler at the end is a little yeah. bit of time travel and science fiction <laughs> as well. Even movies that make me laugh like 500 Days of Summer can be more complicated than they were whenever I was a kid. I'm a product of my time. I know that Annie Hall is probably the better version of the same movie. But (laughs) as the millennial that I am, 500 Days of Summer was the movie that spoke to me at that time. And even my heroes, even my comic book superheroes could be more complicated as well. There's a movie called Chronicle that chronicles the tale of three kids that get superpowers. But more than all of them. The movie that made me think, the movie that spoke to me at the right time, and the movie that complicated all of my heroes and all of my preconceptions before that was and is my favorite movie, The Dark Knight. I knew it. I can't shy away from it. It is Batman in his most pure form. It scared me with Heath Ledger's Joker giving me memories of Pennywise the Clown and It. It was able to make me laugh at times. It was able to make me get real close to crying. And it was able to take a hero, take someone that inspired me and show me that in the real world, it's not as easy as maybe sometimes it seemed like it was when I was a little kid. It came to me right when I was in high school, right when I was really starting to develop my opinions and and my ideas of what life was going to be like. And it's a perfect movie. I've rewatched it dozens and dozens of times since then, and it still is fantastic at every single moment. There is no dry moment in it. Harvey Dent is perfect also. (laughs) I will defend this movie till the day that I die. The Dark Knight. When it first came out was my first movie that I said, this is my favorite. And 10 years later, it still is. And hands down, for me, the best superhero film ever made. No question. Good pick, Cole. Good picks in general. I want to end my list by sharing a film that's very important to me. And I I know it's a film that's important to countless others. But I watched it semi-recently. And when it was over... I remember thinking, this is why I love movies so much. This is why I go to the movies. This movie can make me feel so many different things. Joy, romantic, excited, and nostalgic. And it's the most quoted film in my household growing up, and I'm sure it's the most quoted film in many households growing up and still to this day. 
But I'm talking about a film that has a little something for everybody. It's a film that has fencing, fighting, adventure, escapes, chases, true love, miracles. I botched that. It was not a verbatim <laughs> quote. But I'm talking about the film The Princess Bride. That at the end of the film, it really did tug on my heartstrings when you have this relationship with Fred Savage, the grandson, and the grandfather, portrayed by Peter Falk, who over the course of this movie have bonded over, of all, of all things, a story. And I really think that's an important thing to point out, that stories in general bring us together. They do help us to bond. They do help us to identify with others. And they help us to develop talents. My dad, I've shared this on the program before, but my dad helped start to shape some of my talents with, with different characters and different voices when he would read us stories from Uncle Remus, and he would do all the different voices. So stories in general are a very important part of my life and who I am and what I do every day at work. Aside from that, it is just a deeply funny movie. And that had characters in it that you genuinely care about, characters that spit out lines that you can't get out of your head and that you will go out of your way to try to quote, anybody want a peanut? And it's just such an exciting, fun movie. There's nothing else that I've ever seen quite like it. There's a similar film to it called Stardust that you should also check out. But there's nothing else quite like it that I've ever seen before. And I don't know that I will see anything quite like it ever again. And to me, I'm so excited that this film, even after, gosh, it's got to be 30-plus years, still holds... Uh, it's still a strong film, and for a lot of people, is their favorite movie of all time. It's definitely on my list of favorite movies. And it's the film that reminds me why I love movies in general. Cole, Beautiful. I'm really I'm really excited that we had this opportunity to get to know each other better and give other give our listeners a peek behind the curtain, as you said. And, you know, I'm sure both you and I could agree there are countless other films that, that we could have put on this list. But uh, that's the great thing about movies. They'll make more every year and we'll have additions and subtractions as life goes on. And as we just have different experiences as people, the movies that touch us and speak to us, make us laugh and cry will change as well. Absolutely. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. And as you said, Cole, the more we find films that are important to us and that we've really just got to put a a spotlight on, we're going to let you know about them. That's the whole goal of screen cleaning is we're going to put a big old spotlight on in all that is good in entertainment. That's going to do it for this episode. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us on Screen Cleaning.